after the um, intriguing, let's call it intriguing, UCF-Duke uh, game. Uh, that was probably the game of the weekend in uh, an otherwise hmm, kind of eh, first round and second round of the NCAA tournament. Um, John Rothstein, who I think maybe is trolling us a little bit at this point, the CBS Sports personality for college basketball, he tweeted, that was one of the best NCAA tournament games I've ever seen in my life. And then he added, sorry for delay in this tweet. Had to call my parents immediately. I'm speechless for the first time in three and a half decades. What what I guess I want to talk about two things. One, what did you think of this tweet, Tom? And two, when was the last time you called a relative to talk about the result of a sporting event? Uh, I'll take the second part first. I call my mother regularly during baseball season to tell her to put on a Yankee game uh, or like talk about a Yankee game after they won. My mom likes to, I mean, I do this too sometimes, she'll turn the game off if they're losing. So I'll tell her to turn it back on because they've tied the game or they won the game. She goes to she, otherwise she'd go to bed thinking they lost. Um, so I, t- I call people, my mom and my dad sometimes, but mostly my mom after Yankees game. So that happens probably like you know six or seven times a season. So that's not that out of the ordinary. And then what I think of this this tweet, I think it was a little over the top. It was a nice second round game. We had a pretty boring weekend, pretty boring as far as you know, not that many close games, a lot of double digit wins, a lot of chalk. Finally, Duke. The top seed in the tournament was tested, and it was a great game, and it was a fun game. Back and forth, you know, you thought both teams were going to win in the final two minutes. It was a true measure of a great game. But I think we should just calm down with whether one of the best NCAA tournament games Rothstein's ever seen in his life. It was a second-round game. It was fine. It was good. It was fun to see Duke get tested. There was a lot of atmosphere, a lot of uh, close plays and 50-50 plays, but I would stop short of calling it a great, great basketball game. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it was a, you know it was a, it's a really good game. It was dramatic because it was the, the number one team. It, the coach. Well, we'll talk about it a little more later. But I want to focus on this tweet. <laughs> um, so John Rothstein is known for saying there's so much X and Y, and it's not like the comparisons are ridiculous. Like, oh, there's so much uh, Paul Pierce in like some random guy who plays Robert Morris, um, or he'll he'll say. Um, he says this is March, which is kind of his thing now, which is a pretty good, you know, something crazy happens. This is March. We'll sleep in um, May. Yeah, he likes he likes to talk about uh, the the Joker. He'll be like, "Here we go," and he'll be like, "Dark Knight, circa 2008," rather than just saying, you know. Anyway, but uh, to answer the second question first, again, I will very rarely call my parents about uh, some kind of sporting event. That happened, um, but I have I remember a couple of memorable occasions of this sort of thing happening. One, um, my uncle, this is back in the '80s, called my parents because he was he was alone. Um, I guess his his wife or family had gone out, but he was alone watching the uh, Boston College Miami game where Doug Flutie had the hail mary. So he just had to talk to someone. This is not when you had like text that you call my parents. It was like, did you see that? Did you see that? That's pretty. That's a story that my my mom always remembers whenever like Boston College football comes up or Doug Flutie. And I remember in 2003, Game 7 of the ALCS, um, calling my, my grandmother, huge Red Sox fan, the 6th or 7th inning, just to make sure she was watching. She said she was, and then the Yankees... I don't, I don't, I don't want to go any further. Any, you, you know what happened. That's the Grady equivalent Little, of... Yeah. You know, I still you know. defend Grady Little. He gave up a blue pit. It wasn't, it wasn't a bad pitch. Yeah. Uh, anyhow. Um, but this tweet, you know... I don't think I've ever called my parents, or I don't think I've no. I think it'd be it's, it'd be weird to call a relative to to like talk about a game that didn't really involve like 
a team you really cared about, just like a really good sporting event in a sport that you care about. Like, I don't know. I, I think I'm thinking about like, what is a sporting event that I really care about in a sport that I really care about, but didn't involve with my teens. I think of actually like game six of, I think it was the 2011 world series between the Rangers and the Cardinals. It was one of the most interesting games I've ever seen, but I, I, I guess maybe it was one o'clock in the morning by the time it ended, but I didn't think of calling anyone. I just tweeted. I guess that's what we do nowadays. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, he could have tweeted and called his parents. I don't think he had to do it in that order. It just, just seemed like a little bit manufactured, as you said. I wonder what his parents were thinking when they called. I wonder if they like kind of humored him or were they were really excited for the fact that he was speaking to the first time. They were like, oh, John, that's great. Or that they were like, uh, hey, John. Hey, John you know, we're just we're finishing dinner, dinner, yeah. And, you know. <laughs> Have you tweeted yet? <laughs> <laughs> what about all your fans and followers on Twitter? They want to know what you think of this Duke UCF game. Anyway, we'll stop ripping on John Rothstein. He's, I, I appreciate his passion. He's kind of like the digital age Dick Vitale, maybe. Double bonus the rest of the way. Double two, bonus as that's well. That's right, two free throws. Both teams will be on the double bonus, so we'll have two the rest of the way. Welcome to episode 23 of the Double Bonus Podcast. Along with Brendan DeRocher, I'm Tom Borstein. We have played 48 games of the NCAA tournament. There are 15. Well, we haven't played. I've, I've played no game. That's right. We, you haven't played any. Actually, and it's technically, what, 52 if you include the first four, which I don't like doing. Um, so 52 games down, 15 to go. Is that right? Yes. Whoa. Breaking news. Uh, John Rossi. Speaking of John Rossi, <laughs> I had his Twitter open. Uh-oh. And uh, apparently sources nine minutes ago say – uh, San Francisco's Kyle Smith is about to be named the head coach at Washington State, barring any complications and finalizing a deal between the two sides. Okay. Official announcement could happen soon. Well, those of you who listen to the podcast for a while know Kyle Smith is, uh, I'm friends with his, him and his, he and his wife. You know, they didn't contact me knowing I have this podcast. I might have blurted it out unintentionally, but that's a, that's a tough job. I, I was hoping he might have a better end of the season and have a chance at the Cal job, but or maybe a couple years from now, the Stanford job. But Washington State, whew, I know they have family in uh, in that part of Washington, so it's going to be uh, – they'll have some support there, but that's a tough job. Good luck to him. I think he uh, he could do a good job there, but it's not going to be um, it's not going to be easy. Uh, anyway, back to your open. Sorry, I just – Yeah, no, breaking news. Breaking. Yeah, my friend texted yeah. me about it. My friend knows I'm all about the Kyle Smith beat. He mm-hmm. texted me, wow, Kyle Smith to Washington State. Anyway, uh, yes, so we've played – 52 games. Of the yeah, tournament. got the first four, I guess. Yeah. Right, and then 15 left. So the uh, dream of the all-ACC Final Four is alive, or a nightmare for Brendan. Brendan is rubbing his eyes right now on Skype. So that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we've had a pretty chalky tournament. Before we get to that, though, remember, rate us on iTunes. Give us five stars or better. Um, review us. Give us a nice review. I think we've gotten some good reviews in here. You can subscribe there. You can subscribe on Spotify. Uh, Podbean, wherever fine podcasts are available, and you can email us at doublebonuspod at gmail.com. So yeah. that's or it. just send a link to your friends. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the goal is for everyone else to appreciate the great content that we're pumping out here yeah. once a week or or so. Or so, yeah. Um, I, I ran into one of our listeners today um, at my my place of business, <laughs> and he um, he was he tweeted at us about a little bit upset about my reference to Roseanne last week, which I don't even know what the context was to that, but you know. <laughs> Obviously, I I, I, uh, I I pulled back from that quite quickly. Uh, he wanted me to update my uh, sitcom. Uh, anyway, 
references. Uh, but I ran into him, and he he was very happy that uh, listening to the podcast, he felt more informed. He said he switched his pick from Syracuse to Baylor. Good job. As a result of our podcast, and he said he's in the ninety third percentile at ESPN, and and I think that you know at least ninety one percent of that ninety three percentile is probably as a result of listening to this podcast. If I if I take some credit myself, so Why you not? know you could be close to not really making real money but bragging to your friends about your performances in pools if you well you're listening so tell your well, maybe don't tell your friends because they're listening too you wouldn't get the advantage i don't know tell your it's, friends it's, it's if you very, tell your friends to listen just tell them you can, they can't do better than you in a bracket pool or bracket yeah. prediction because they listen they have to purposely yeah. do worse that's all yeah yeah there's a check check with you first make sure that they there's no picks that you made as a result of listening to the podcast that they are going to make that might you know, thwart your advantage in uh, in said pool. It's a very complicated um, process, approval process. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it has to be notarized as well. That's yeah. that's our rule. Uh, you don't have to notarize your your review, but you do have to notarize. And uh, let's move on. Yeah. Um, so find a tell your friends on 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 the various platforms and such. And uh, if you're listening, then you're listening already. But other people can listen <laughs> to if you tell them. Or you stop listening. <laughs> yeah. Or you can stop seconds. listening. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. as long, you don't have to listen. It's just like play it. Just, just get like, the download, play through. start it. Yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Let it play through. Uh, turn your, put your headphones down when you go to bed. Let it play through. Play through all the episodes after that too, so we can get extra plays. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know. That's how you goose the ratings. That's um. Anyway, we're gonna talk about some of the weekend themes, and then we're gonna uh do talk about our favorite teams um and their ignominious ends to the season um. And then a little bit, it's a little bit of coaching and transfer news. We already had the Kyle Smith breaking news, but there's a few other things. And then we're going to do a quick segment on what we're calling our rooting rankings, like how the teams we're rooting for. So if you care what we care about, then maybe you root for the same teams, or maybe you have your own rooting rankings. And then we'll preview the four uh, regions, um, the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight. And um, and if you're still listening by then, uh, well, congratulations. Then, uh, yeah. Yeah, Th- thank we'll, you we'll, in we'll advance. Speak. Yeah. Well, you get the no prize yeah. um, in that yeah. case. But let's start with some of the weekend themes. Let's start first with the most exciting games per Ken Palm. We're going to use his rankings of excitement. Not John Roth games, Ken Palms. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I, I, I gave him a hard, hard time, and then he gets the breaking news on Kyle Smith right away. Right, you know. That's karma. So the, the man is a professional. Um, so the five most exciting games of the weekend um, in order were – Duke over UF, UCF. We talked about that one a little bit already. Maryland over Belmont. Liberty over Mississippi State. LSU over Maryland. And UC Irvine over Kansas State. Um, I'll start with the Duke-UCF game. It was really intriguing in part because it was Duke. And just Duke has to be the center of everything. They're just a very interesting team this year for a variety of reasons. Um, one thing that interested me most of this game is, you know, there are several calls maybe you want to go into, Tom, and the finish itself. But defensively how UCF defended Duke. So Duke was trying to pressure UCF on defense, and so therefore it had its best two defensive guards in the game for much of the game in Jordan Goldwire and Trey Jones, and neither player is really a threat from the outside. Jordan Goldwire ended up making one three-pointer, and so did Trey Jones, but Jones is one for eight on threes, and Goldwire is one for three. Um, Jones is 23% for the season on three-pointers, and and Goldwire barely even attempts any. He's, um, if I look at his, he's three for twenty-five in the season. That's twelve percent. So what uh, UCF actually did is they would have Taco Fall, their seven-foot-six behemoth center, guard one of those two players. And by guard, I mean not guard. Stand in the paint, 
the whole time and leave those players literally wide open. Um, and that cut off a lot of driving lanes for uh, R.J. Barrett and Zion Williamson, who still had qu- actually quite good games, but it, it mucked up the offense for a while. And uh, despite that, Duke still scored one point one uh, three points per possession. It was really the UCF offense kept them in the game. Aubrey Dawkins had 32 points. They hit 9 of 18 three-pointers. Um, and they had, they had made 15 free throws as well, which is 8 more than Duke had. Uh, what were your thoughts on that defensive strategy by uh, Coach Johnny Dawkins and other any other thoughts you had on this uh, most considered the game of the weekend? Well, let's talk the strategy because obviously Taco Fall is unique. He's seven six. He's one of the tallest human beings on the planet. And he is a very good person to have hanging around the basket. Um, so I'm not sure any other teams are going to emulate that. But I think it's, and it's very gutsy to just say, you know what, shoot the three as much as you want. Those guys like Trey Jones will let you have it live and die. Like coaches don't necessarily want to do that. Like if you're giving up these wide open threes, like it's just a very, it's a risky thing and coaches don't like to take risks. It's unconventional what they did and coaches don't like to do that. So I'd be interested to see if other teams emulate this in the next few rounds. Um, I think it's a pretty wise strategy and I think you could argue that UCF got pretty unlucky because Duke shot 10% better than their season average from three. They shot 40% yeah, despite, from three yeah. despite this. So RJ yeah, Barrett the other three players who took threes, yeah, yeah, they were eight for fourteen. Reddish was three, three for four. Zion was three for seven. So it didn't really work a hundred percent well for UCF. And on a different night, it might have worked out, and they might have won the game. Um, so I think it'll be a very interesting strategy. We'll see uh, if Buzz Williams does it. We'll see if Tom Izzo d- tries to do it if they get that far and play in the regional final in Washington. Uh, but I think it was a good strategy, and it actually kind of they were a little unlucky as far as the three-point shooting goes. Uh, as for this game, uh, Duke was down 74-70 with 2-1 to go in the half, and UCF had the ball and was going on a 2-1-1 and threw a lob and mucked up the lob. So it was, you know, like two minutes mm. left. They had, it was a fast break. They obviously, I think, were correct in going to score, but they went with pretty relatively low execution, a low percentage play of the lob. Coach Bob Walsh, former main head coach, great Twitter follow. He was ripping the lob, um, and that was basically the worst possible scenario for... Uh, this game for for UCF because they didn't score and they wasted almost no time. So at least if you take a normal possession, which they sh- probably shouldn't have done, uh, you would have run time off the clock. But instead they didn't do it. They came right down. Duke did. Cam Reddish hit a three. It's a one-point game, and the t- the momentum really turned because that was really a chance for UCF. And I think that's I said to the said to the people I was watching the game with Duke's going to win right after that messed up lob, and it didn't come easy, but they did win. So mm-hmm. I think that was a huge play in the game. That was really what started it. And then we can talk all we want about. The um, non-foul on Zion when he was driving on uh, who did who did he bump into? I forget now. On uh, I think it was um, like Terrell Allen oh, or Dayon Dayon Griffin. I don't remember okay. exactly. Yeah. Well, Fran Fish, basically it was a block charge call outside before he got to Taco Fall, and Drew Taco Fall's falls fifth foul. Don't say that five times fast. And Fran Fraschilla <laughs> tweeted that it wasn't a it could have been a no call, and it probably wasn't it could have been a block or a charge but it wasn't none and of course taco foul fouls out and then he's not in the game when duke hooks and holds and pushes their way to the offensive rebound on the putback of the miss zion shot and yeah rj barrett pushed in the back of aubrey dawkins i think it was a fairly subtle yeah you know obviously and you slow it that's down i think that's gonna, a that's a that's just yeah. never going to get called forget duke no one's going to get called for that in the winning seconds of a game it is an impressive feat uh to be up three with 15 seconds left and lose the game regulation, uh, which is exactly what UCF did. So they were unlucky to lose this game. 
is what I'm saying. Then, of course, the two shots at the end that rimmed out. Tough luck. Uh, Duke made some plays, though, and um, I think it's better. They did, get, they, they did get a fortunate call on that non-shot clock violation. I didn't really see the ball hit the rim. Right. I don't know if you remember, but UCF, I think uh, Dawkins tried a very difficult runner. It might actually have been B.J. Taylor. Those are their two star guards. Uh, he banked it off the backboard. From one angle, it looked like it definitely didn't hit the rim. My wife was saying it didn't hit the rim. Uh, she also was like, I, I don't, I'm so stressed out. I don't even know why. I don't care about this game. Um, <laughs> because I was I was emotive, I guess, during the game. Even though, I mean, I, didn't, I, I did want UCF to win, but it, it was just like an exciting game. But um, then I guess there's a replay that maybe was inconclusive, and, and UCF ended up getting the rebound and putting it back. Um, and that was a big two points at that time of the game. Um, so I think there were calls that went both ways, and you know I didn't think Taco Fall could have picked up his fourth foul earlier um, than he did. Um, so I, I don't really think that Duke got a really beneficial whistle. Whistle actually, um, you know UCF did take eight more foul shots in the game, despite the fact that they were mainly a jump shooting team. Uh, B.J. Taylor was driving uh, pretty aggressively at times. Um, so you know I I guess we can move on from this game unless you have any other thoughts. But you know. We'll talk about the Duke-Virginia Tech matchup and what this means for Duke moving forward, but um, but it was certainly an interesting game. I just want to say I think that it wasn't, it didn't hit the rim, and that's one of the things we've been talking about all year, whether they should go with what they think happened or what if they have indisputable evidence, and that's really the standard. That's the whole thing. And also, I think for by and large, I know it's, it stinks if you're rooting for UCF or you're rooting and you get invested in this game. Of course, most people, non-Duke fans, wanted them to win, but it's better for the tournament to have Duke around for the uh, – for the regionals and possibly the final four. I, 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 I don't hate to say it. I think it's much better of Duke, a possible Duke, Michigan state regional final on Sunday than UCF, Michigan state, or you, you know, whoever. So credit to UCF for playing well. Um, Aubrey Dawkins had the game of his life. I'm playing for his father, but at the end, I think it's better that Duke moved on and I'm okay with all the chalk in the rest of the tournament, which we'll get to right now. Yeah, the other the other ga- top games of the weekend, Maryland Belmont, a game I honestly really didn't watch much of. I think it was during the day, and Same. you know it's been a little bit busy at work. But uh, Dylan Windler had 33, 35 points for Belmont, one of the performances of the weekend. Um, but uh, Maryland still escaped, um, so that was not a uh, that uh, Maryland ended up losing. Actually, one of the other good games of the weekend that was Maryland LSU. That game was interesting because of uh, just the matchups of two. Very athletic teams with with a lot of bigs. You don't see that as often um, anymore. In that game, Maryland was down big early, um, as much as 15 and maybe even more. Uh, But they came back late in the first half, knocked down a couple of threes. Um, It was actually um, Aaron Wiggins who knocked down three threes in the first half. He didn't score the rest rest of the game, or he didn't have a field goal the rest of the game. Uh, But late on, Eric... um, Skyler Mays had a big three for LSU, and then Jalen Smith, a six-ten freshman, tied it with a big three in the, out of the corner. Uh, and Great then the goggle. final possession, yes, uh, Jalen Smith and Bruno Fernando, one of the most interesting, formidable front courts. But in the last possession, I feel like that size hurt them a little bit because they were trying to guard a screen roll, and clearly Jalen Smith was trying to funnel. Tremont Waters back to the middle. Tremont Waters is probably the best player on LSU, along with uh, Nas Reed. He's their point guard, originally committed to Georgetown when John Thompson uh, III was let go. He uh, transferred. I don't know how much money he took, but he ended up at LSU. <laughs> um, and so 
Tremont Waters was was they were trying to force him center, but he got around Smith, who couldn't shuffle his feet quickly enough. It got to the rim and made the finish, uh, and got the finish up just over the outstretched arms of both Smith and Bruno Fernando. Um, Smith had five blocks in the game, but he couldn't get a sixth there, and LSU came out with the win. Uh, any thoughts on the two close Maryland games? I did not also watch much of the Belmont game. Uh, this game started off really ugly. It was the standalone game on Saturday, the first game of the second round, and it was not pretty for the first half, but then it got close and got exciting. And as you said, um, Maryland got the matchup they wanted. They got um, that situation late in the game, and they made him pay. I wonder what Will Wade is doing right now, thinking about this team as Tony Benford leads his LSU team to the Sweet 16 while Will Wade is suspended. I just, it's a, I know, you think he's he's a, so upset at the school, he's not watching the games, like, I wonder what he's doing, so. Yeah, I I remember uh, the similar situation that I can even think of, it's obviously different, but Bill Frieder, when he was the coach at Michigan in the late 80s, um, he was fired because he had taken the job at Arizona State. He wanted a change of scenery, It's and he had taken the job at Arizona State after several years at Michigan. And Bo Schembechler, uh, Bill Frieder expected to coach the team in the NCAA tournament, and Bo Schembechler said, no, a Michigan man will coach Michigan. <laughs> and he uh, brought in Steve Fisher, as he was the assistant. He promoted him to head coach. Um, and... Bill Frieder actually showed up in Atlanta where Michigan was playing the first two rounds. Of course, Michigan went on to win the NCAA tournament that year behind Romeo Robinson and Glenn Rice. And, um, but Bill Frieder was actually there, and he, like, he had a really relationship with the players, and they, under- they said, at least in the documentary, there's a Big Ten elite documentary on this team. They, sa- they said they understood the situation, and they didn't have any hard feelings, but uh, obviously it helped to launch Steve Fisher's career. He went on to two more Final Fours of the Fab Five. Um, which were then taken down from the rafters, but that's more Chris Weber's fault, I think, than Steve Fisher. And then Steve Fisher went on to San Diego State, where he revitalized, or I guess I would say vitalized that program. Uh, but I do wonder, did he sh- was he there in, I guess, Hartford? Did he show up and say hi to the players, or is he like basically persona non grata in general, maybe just texting? Now you can kind of text guys. It's a little bit different. I guess you could have called them in 1989 when it happened to Bill Frieder. Yeah, well, LSU... One of the worst teams to get through by well, Ken Palm rankings, but here we are, Sweet 16 for them. So credit to them. It's been a been a tumultuous, event-filled year for the LSU Tigers. Let's just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of the other top games: um, UC Irvine, K State. Uh, K State was the only top four seed to lose in the first round. Um, K State had a, an early lead at, by 10 points and ended up losing by six. The Anteaters um, went on and played. Uh, we talked about them last week. How they had. Uh, they had won, hadn't lost a game in a long time, and they had won 30 games in the regular season. And were a very tough team, so they did end up beating K State without um, Dean Wade. We, we had no Will Wade. We had no Dean Wade. Yeah. Uh, we it was not a good weekend for the Wades. Um, and then the other two games of the weekend I want to talk about briefly are the games that Tom and I lost uh, in the Survivor Challenge that we're in on um, Liberty Mississippi State. The Survivor Challenge is you pick basically couple teams a day to start the tournament, and then one team afterwards. You can't be the same team twice. Um, the only loss I had in the first two days was Mississippi State against Liberty. They were up by 10 with seven minutes left, ended up losing. Uh, Liberty's, uh, his name's Holmesley. Let me get his first name. Is it Robert Holmesley? Uh, Chad Holmesley? Let's, let's look at it. Let's, let's get the real name. Caleb Holmesley. 
he had uh, 30 points, a career game for him, uh, and knocked off uh, Ben Hallen's Mississippi State team, despite uh, 27 from Kundari Witherspoon. Uh, again, Ben Hallen, kind of under, except for the years we went to the Final Four at UCLA, he's pretty much underachieved in the NCAA tournament existently with both Pitt and now later with UCLA and now more recently with Mississippi State. And then the game where Tom uh, succumbed, it was Iowa um, against Cincinnati. Cincinnati, who had a 12-point lead early, and then late on, Iowa just couldn't stop scoring. Um, I have a note on this game because the scoring trend was kind of uh, was kind of crazy. Let me get it out here. Um, let's see. It was very bad defense Iowa, by Cincinnati. Yeah. So it was 59-55 with 8.05 left, and UC Cincinnati led. And then Iowa scored 24 points in the last 15 possessions. Uh, ended up winning the game. Any thoughts on uh, either of those, any of those three games? Uh, the Cincinnati, it's just really depressing for them. This is supposed to be a defensive team. It's the second straight year. They've blown a big second half lead in the uh, tournament. Remember last year they lost to Nevada. They blew at a 22 point lead. This year they lost. They were up nine with, um, sorry, no, they weren't. They were up uh, 13 early in the game. So 18 mm-hmm. 5. Mm-hmm. I checked that score. I was like, oh, doing good here in the survivor pool. And then you're never safe. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mick Cronin's, Mick Cronin's had a checkered NCAA tournament. So you talk about Ben Hallen, and now you talk about Mick Cronin. So just disappointed to see a team. I know Iowa's good offensively, but they had 1.18 points per possession. This was a, a half home game for Cincinnati, so that was disappointing. Um, Liberty. Yeah, they were playing what in Columbus? Yeah, uh, yeah, Columbus. Yeah. yeah. And we were t- we spent so much time talking about how Cincinnati's going to get a fake home game against Tennessee in the second round in the 7-2 game, and it didn't happen. So. Um, yeah. Save yourself. Well, one note on Mick Cronin. Nine straight NCAA tournaments, uh, Cincinnati. Um, he's been seated anywhere from 2 to 10 um, and has a total of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 wins. 6 and 9 in the NCAA tournament. Hasn't been past the second round since 2012 when they went to the Sweet 16 as a 6 seed. That year they knocked off Florida State uh, when they had Sean Kilpatrick, Kashmir Wright, among other players. Yeah, so disappointing. But, uh, you know, they weren't, weren't going anywhere. Anyway, Iowa then had another comeback later in the weekend that fell short. Um, so disappointing for me to go out of the uh, Survivor Challenge, but that's how it is. Mm-hmm. Um, let's move on to some other trends we saw. These ones will be shorter. I mean, obviously, top five games are not trends. That's just, like, a thing that happened. So three-point attempts are way, way up in the NCAA tournament. Ken Pomeroy um, posted a graphic that showed that as recently as 2014, 32% of uh, three point of all field goal attempts were three-pointers. And then we went up to 35% in 2016, 36, 35.5% in 2017, and then a little over 38% in 2018. And this year, we have almost 41% of all field goal attempts in the NCAA tournament have been three-pointers. Um, Villanova uh, the defending national champions who've been probably the forerunner of shooting the three at a high clip in terms of uh, number of attempts, uh, at least among big conference teams. Uh, they fell to Purdue in a game where they took 38 three-pointers and 22 pointers. It was the fourth highest percentage of three-pointers they had taken ever. Of course, they're trying to come back in that game. Purdue ended up blowing them out. Uh, what are your thoughts on the three-point explosion. We've seen the regular season kind of incrementally come up, but then the NCAA tournament seems to go up even further. Yeah, I mean, it's what the basketball is moving toward. You watch It's like watching the Houston Rockets on not with not as good shooters, and it, it looks nice when it wins. Like Villanova, no one said Villanova was not pleasing to watch last year. They shot a lot of threes last year. It was really impressive. 
they're unstoppable. But when you have teams that aren't as good at shooting, it gets kind of tiresome. Now, Purdue had a great game against Villanova. I actually watched that game with a Villanova fan, and she was not happy. Um, from Basically from the tip. Uh, but in that game, Villanova shot 38 threes and 22s, and Purdue, not to be outdone, shot 30 threes and 24 twos. And Carson Edwards was 9 of 16 from three. So it's obviously the smart play. The mid-range jumper is totally gone from the sport, basically. Like, you see someone shoot an 18-foot, you're like, what is he doing? Um, so it's just part of the, the game. And I think these teams, they run, they're well-coached, they're well-scouted, and they're going to shoot the threes in the big spots in these tournament games, and that's just what's happening. So I don't know if you want to move the line back or you just want to enjoy the show and hope it stabilizes. We're talking about, what, like two or three attempts more per game over the last couple of years, according to this tweet. I mean, it's a lot. Of, it's a pretty big number. It doesn't seem like a lot, yeah, but it's we- a pretty big number. Yeah, it's recently, at least in the regular season, as recently as 2014, 33% of all th- field goal attempts were three-pointers. And that same year, 32% of NCAA tournament games had it. But then we've gone up from 33% um, in 2014 to 34, then 35, 36, 37 and a half last year, now 38.7. And, and in and the NCAA tournament has outstripped that. I think in part because Villanova's played so many games, in part because I think some of the smaller conference teams are realizing that the best way to pull a big upset is to just take a lot of threes. We didn't see a lot of big upsets this weekend, but we did see teams, notably Iona, that made a lot of threes to keep it close with North Carolina for a while. Um, and in, and are, they're being less cautious about just saying, hey, we're down by 12 with five minutes to go. We're just going to bomb threes, and that's our best chance to win. And it probably is. It's, it's also a good chance to lose by 25, but would you rather lose by 25 with a 5% chance of winning or lose by 16 with a 3% chance of winning. I mean, that's kind of, I don't know. That's, those are probably, those are made up numbers, obviously. Yeah, looking at this chart, though, 2015 in the tournament, I think this was still with the 35-second shot clock. There were just over 32 threes attempted per game, and now we're just under 41. So that's in f- basically five seasons. Four, yeah, that, that's percentage four, of four attempts, attempts that were threes. Oh, it's percentage of yeah. attempts? Oh, okay, sorry. Oh, yeah, look at that. I read it. Read the wax. Still a pretty big jump. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so... Uh, I don't know. They'll probably move the line back at some point. They already moved it back once since 2008, so they'll move it back again a little bit, maybe. Yeah, and I think they move it back to the international distance, but let's move on. We've kind of buried the lead a little bit. We've referenced it about how chalky uh, the tournament has been. Again, we saw just one seed lower than 12 win in the first round, and in the now in the regional semifinals, we have all the top three seeds advancing, uh, two four seeds, one five seed, and then Oregon. And then the five seed, Auburn, is a team that we've had in the top 10 or 15 at various times in our top 25. And then the 12 seed, Oregon, was a team that was ranked in the top 20 to start the season. So um, I, I don't, I'm hesitant to like make sweeping kind of conclusions about why this is happening, but uh, maybe you're less hesitant. Uh, no, I mean, sometimes you things break and you get the teams winning. I think that we talked about how the bubble was bad this year, and it probably was, and that's why we didn't see any teams really pull it off. It says something that the only 12 seed to win was a quote-unquote major conference team. Oregon's playing well. I remember they had to deal with the loss of ball ball early in the year, and they adjusted well and finished strong. Auburn upset Kansas, quote-unquote upset Kansas. No, they were favored against Kansas, but they beat Kansas, but they were a top preseason top 10, 15 team, as you said. And really, just some of these teams, I mean, the teams that you'd be most disappointed in are Buffalo, who was in the game with Texas Tech and then just like got steamrolled the rest of the way. And then Wofford, who had Fletcher McGee go 0 for 12 
from three against Kentucky, one of the best three-point mm-hmm. shooters in the country, just go over 12, and they lose to Kentucky. Um, yeah. Against Seton so. Hall, he set the record for the most three-pointers in a season ever. Yeah. And then against Kentucky, he sets the record for the most three-point attempts in an NCAA tournament game without a make. So, I mean, look, just looking through the rest of the Ken Palm teams, what other teams are you most... Those are the two most disappointing teams because those teams, Buffalo had tournament experience. Uh, they were a very exciting offensive team, a lot of threats, and they were just sh- totally shut down. And then Wofford had a vulnerable Kentucky team without P.J. Washington, and they just couldn't mm-hmm. get make the shots, basically. They were there. They had their chances, and that's really... The disappointing part to me. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other team like St. Mary's. No, I just don't really. See if you look at the, if you look at our top 15 from our top 25 on March 10th, which is now 16 days ago, of our top 15, both of us, 14 of the top 15 have moved on to the uh, Sweet 16. The only ones that are not on are for you, number 12 Kansas, and for me, number 14 Kansas State, yeah. which are also the only two top four seeds not to move on. Uh, which leaves only two teams. We, neither one of us had Auburn or Oregon in our top 15. I had Auburn 19th, and neither one of us had Oregon ranked. Although, if you remember our top 25 kind of thing, we aggregated from previous months. I did have Oregon ranked in our first poll. So if Oregon does win the NCAA tournament, then I would win our top 25 competition. Yeah. Not likely to happen. They are clearly the worst team left, despite the fact they're playing great defense, which we'll talk about a little bit more a little bit later. Um so uh, one other, a couple other topics. One, momentum. You know, people talk about momentum going to the NCAA tournament. We warned you guys about Iowa State and Auburn teams that had hot momentum, um, and then that they that often happens when you win a conference tournament as a kind of mid seed. Sometimes you lose your first uh, NCAA tournament game. Um, Iowa State did. Auburn nearly did. They nearly blew it against New Mexico State. Um, so the you know the question is, we have some teams that had momentum one way or the other. Um, Iowa State, good, and then they lost. Washington, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Iowa, bad, and then they won. And so in that way, it seems like, uh, you know, momentum doesn't matter. But then we also see teams like Wofford, UC Irvine, Oregon, who had a good momentum entering the tournament that played well. Both of those te- All the teams played well. And then teams with bad momentum going in the tournament, Marquette, Mississippi being two of them, who looked uh, really bad in the first round. So do you have any thoughts on the value of momentum entering the NCAA tournament? Um, I think it... I think it just causes us... To, it's not bad. I don't think it hurts you, obviously. I just think it causes us to overrate certain teams. Like, Iowa State was overrated, and their def- their offense was just poor against Ohio State. They only scored 0.92 points per possession. They just didn't um, have what it took in that game. They just kind of, like, were very sluggish, oddly sluggish in that game against Ohio State. And Auburn, I mean, they are a very energetic team. Bruce Pearl, very energetic. I could not stop watching this clip of him during the first round game of him just like shaking his head saying not good and then screaming at his team like but pausing with this weird like weird expression on his face i highly kyle boone tweeted the video i spent i literally have watched it 50 times i had it on loop during the end of the game it was amazing um and he wasn't happy this is by the way with his team up um um in the game of course the uh, the angriest coach was tom Izzo, which we don't really have to go into too much but um but they're a very energetic team, and they play well, and they shoot their streaky team. They shoot well. They force a lot of turnovers. They're all over the place. Kansas found that out. So maybe it helps them more uh, than another team. But uh, momentum is just something that kind of seems to happen. It's, you know, like I don't think that many players are streaky, and as streaky as they think, I don't think that many teams are. I mean, teams adjust, though, and teams make adjustments. And maybe Auburn, which didn't really have a big win all season, starts bagging them. Maybe they get confident, and maybe Bruce Pearl's found something with this rotation um, and the way he's playing. So I think it's more adjustments than any momentum. But better teams win more games late in the season also. So 
there's that to mm-hmm. consider as well. So. Yeah, I mean, Iowa State obviously had a weird end to the season. They played very poorly at the end of the regulation, regular season um, in the Big 12, but then they won the Big 12 tournament. But this marks the third time in five years they've won the Big 12 tournament, and in those three seasons they've won a total of one NCAA tournament game. And then there are rumors that Steve Prohm was going to be the next coach at Alabama after Alabama uh, fired Avery Johnson. He ends up staying on, but then Cam Lard, a player who was um, suspended earlier in the season but is one of the, was one of their rotation players besides his transfer. It's been kind of a very up-and-down last week or so at Iowa State. There are rumors that if Prohm left for Alabama, Iowa State might hire Fred Hoiberg, but now it looks like Fred Hoiberg is going to Nebraska. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Mid-major leagues and their struggles. Um, the A-10 was 0-2, two blowouts. The Mid- Mountain West Conference was 0-2, also with two very poor performances. John Gassaway had a tweet that uh, the Mountain West Conference, uh, based on their seeds, like how many wins typically each seed gets, the Mountain West would be expected to have won 26 games this decade in the NCAA tournament, but they've actually won only 14. Sounds like um, an NCAA problem, not a Mountain West problem, to be honest. <laughs> Maybe, um, unless they're just performing. I, yeah, I guess if they're not earning those seeds. Um, At some point, you got to stop blaming the conference and start seeding them properly. Yeah, maybe that's the case. Uh, the Mountain West a few, a few years ago had a lot of high seeds. I remember New Mexico lost to Harvard in Steve Alford's last game there. Um, we've talked a lot this year about how the A-10 and the Mountain West were down. The A-10, I think, f- finished below the Ivy League in the uh, Ken Palm standings. You know, another league that's not a mid-major league, and it's a little bit of a touchy subject for like a lot of Big East fans, uh, but the Big East had a very poor tournament. It was a little bit... The minute I picked Seton Hall at the end of the podcast last week, after like a two hours of talking to Tom, I was like, "That's just that's such a bad pick." That's like, immediately I regretted making it picking. I picked uh, Wofford in my like actual pool, but um, anyway, the Biggies had a very poor uh, performance. St. John's, not surprisingly, was a mess against Arizona State. Um, we also saw uh, Seton Hall. They threatened Wofford, but Wofford always looked the better team in that game. Uh, Marquette was outclassed by. Uh, John Morant and Murray State, and then Villanova, though they played okay and beat St. Mary's, they were a, a complete no-show against Purdue. It seemed to have no answers for Purdue's offense, and um, became like it's, it's a very long re- now record of maybe it's been ten or eleven straight years where the the national champion, defending champion, doesn't get a pass the second round of the NCAA tournament. Um, the the Big East. This is probably their worst year of the Ken Palm era. In the 90s, the Big East had some rough years, especially in the early to mid-90s. Um, and then the first year of the quote-unquote new Big East wasn't a banner season. They had no Sweet 16 teams that year, uh, with Villanova losing in the second round and uh, Creighton with Doug McDermott losing in the second round. Um, but this is probably the worst of that group. You know, The fact they only had four teams and they only had one win. Um, the league, the bottom of the league was maybe a little better than it was that year, but the top of the league was definitely worse. And, you know, I think it, it, they had so many good players who left the league after last season, which was a quite a good year that you expect this sort of thing. On the other hand, um, besides, I, I think Villanova has made, has won the national title twice since the Big East, um, since the new Big East started. I think the other years, they didn't make the 16 in any of those years. And the only other teams that made the 16 in, in this entire now six-year run, if I recall correctly, was Butler did it one year, and then, of course, um, Xavier made it the Elite Eight, uh, and they might have made it one other time. But, you know, the league is base is 
a little bit too much of Villanova and then a bunch of other teams. It's 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 obviously better than the West Coast Conference, but there is in the NCAA tournament at least a little bit of that West Coast Conference feel where the only team you got to really worry about is Gonzaga, maybe one other team. Um, and and I think there's some concern that even though the Big East is actually is obviously a good league and they were like number three in Ken Palm each of the last three years, that um, they're underachieving somewhat in the NCAA tournament. Maybe they don't have quite enough um, top talent coming into the league and they're suffering because of that. Xavier made the 16 also in 2015 in case people are counting where they lost to Arizona. Yeah, uh, Duke in 2016 made the Sweet 16 before losing to Oregon. So that gets that counts as past um, the second round. Who did? Uh, Duke did. 2016 Duke, the year after they won the title. You were talking about team. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Yeah, so, yeah I, it, I must have heard a bad stat somewhere. Okay, well here's another stat that's a good stat. Uh, th- this is the first time since 1981 that the Big East didn't have a team seated fourth or higher. So, I think the over- I think their tournament performance was fine. I think their overall performance was poor. And so, and it's tough when you rely so much on Villanova. This happens, as you said. So, disappointing for them. And I think we should spend a little bit of time talking about Nevada, which you know came in as a preseason top 10 team. All those transfers. They had the run last year in the tournament. Everyone thought they were going to be great, and they just come out late an egg against Florida. I mean, they came back and could have won the game maybe for 45 minutes long instead of 40. But Nevada, arguably the biggest disappointment, uh, one of the biggest disappointments in the country this season, if not the biggest disappointment. Uh, they flame out in the first round uh, to a Florida team that was you know, uninspired all year, and that's just another example of um, the Mountain West just kind of falling flat uh, mm. this year. So, yeah. 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 Ken Palm posted his top 16 from the uh, preseason, the the ones that didn't make the Sweet 16: um, Kansas, Villanova, Nevada, Syracuse, West Virginia, Kansas State, Clemson, Texas, Wisconsin, Florida, Miami, Mississippi State, Iowa State, Indiana, Maryland, Marquette. So on the one hand, it's it's a it's it's a lot of teams in that list. There's like a lot. I and I guess sorry, yeah. these are the 16 highest ranked teams that didn't make it. These are not the top 16 teams that didn't make it. But if you want to look at disappointing teams, you could probably start with that list. And uh, we talked about Villanova already and Nevada. Uh, Kansas is a team that we'll probably talk about a little bit later. Um, and Syracuse is a team that uh, never really seemed like they were as good as their preseason ranking. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, our last topic is going to be a brief one. Height. And, and how much height mattered, especially early in the tournament. Just something quirky I saw when I was looking at Ken Palm was uh, that in the first round, nine of the ten tallest teams in the tournament won. And that included teams that were lower-seeded, like Oregon, uh, UCF, Minnesota, and Iowa, all lower-seeded teams that won. Six of the top ten hot, tallest teams in the tournament made the Sweet 16. Um, and then one of the weird note involving one of the teams, Minnesota, that was one of the tallest teams, I, I didn't even think about this or notice this, but Minnesota was matched up with Michigan State in the second round. Like I don't understand. Like why did they not split them up? It's a very they strange. So, they played such compelling games during the regular season um, <laughs> that they had to play in the in the tournament. Yeah, I don't know. There's another reason Michigan and Michigan State should have been flipped for the thousandth time. We have a basic yeah. clone of last year's regional in Southern California again, and <laughs> Michigan State is stuck with Duke, and which it shouldn't be. And mm-hmm. Michigan State had to play Minnesota. I guess Michigan would have played Minnesota, but at least they they played twice this year, right? Michigan, Michigan, Michigan State, and Minnesota, right? I'm pretty sure they did. Yeah, just put them somewhere else. Like yeah, they're under right ten seeds. Like yeah. I know that Iowa was a ten, and so I'm sure it's a little tricky with all the twos and threes from the eh, whatever. Just figure it out. Like, there's no reason you should play a team from your own conference in the second round of the tournament 
they did this in the Big East in 2011. The Big East had nine teams, and they, you know, yes, you have to put someone with someone in the Sweet 16, but they put literally there were two Big East versus Big East matchups, three versus six in the second round. Connecticut yeah. beat Cincinnati, Cincinnati and yeah. Syracuse beat Marquette, if I recall correctly. Um, Michigan yeah, State only played Minnesota twice this year. The combined margin of victory was 44 points. So, yeah, circle those games on your calendar next year. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just going to scroll through some of my other notes um, from the weekend and mention a few things. Uh, Mie Oni, much like Fletcher McGee, had a very difficult end to his season uh, at Yale. They re- they Yale was there was ready able to beat LSU probably, but um, couldn't make it happen. They they missed at one point 21 of 22 three pointers. Um, Ja Morant had a triple double, and it's not very common in the NCAA tournament. Here's the list of people who've done it: Draymond Green did it twice. Cole Aldrich, Tom, thoughts on Cole Aldrich? Cole Aldrich versus Dayton, 2009, in the second mm. round. I remember that game. That's the year Kansas lost to Michigan State in the Sweet 16. Yeah, we don't talk about that. Um, okay. Dwayne yeah. Wade had one. Yep. Andre Miller, who was one of my favorites when he was at Utah. Uh, David Kane, who I'd not heard of, even though he went to St. John's. Um, he, uh, he, I was at the redmen.com website, and he had 12 points, 11 assists, 11 rebounds versus Texas Tech in the first round of the NCAA tournament in 1993. He went to Adlai Stevenson High School in the Bronx, representing the BX. The nice. other ones, yeah, Shaquille O'Neal, may have heard of him, and then Gary Grant, who played under Bill Frieder at Michigan, was a very good player on teams that underachieved in the NCAA tournament. Uh, scrolling, scrolling. Tom is yelling. PJ Washington injured up a little bit later. Um, Friday, underrated thing about Friday that I know it's been kind of a chalky tournament, but of the kind of toss up e games on Friday, eight of the eleven underdogs actually won those games. Um, so if you picked uh, the the favorite teams on Friday, you probably didn't fare very well. At least of the favorites based on the Ken Palm. Uh, talk about the A-10 getting blown out, St. Louis and VCU. Um, neither one scored more than .85 points per possession in losses on Friday. Well, oh, another thing here that I have a, a gripe with it was the scheduling for TV. West Coast Conference gets two teams in the NCAA tournament. The A-10 gets two teams in the NCAA tournament. Both conferences have both their teams playing the same exact window. What's up with that, Tom? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's probably not the first thing they're considering when they do the uh – scheduling but yes it could have been done better does sure. duke ever play the same time as unc come on they, they think about it uh duke played at seven on friday and then unc played at nine on yeah. um on uh, on friday right and let's look at the tip times for this week i bet you they're not playing at the same time but those are the two you know dual programs in the country they're not st mary's and gonzaga Ouch. Uh, unc plays at 729 on uh, Friday against Auburn. Uh, let's see. Come on, Google, come through for me. And Duke is going to play. Uh, they're playing at 9:39. So yeah, so they will not play at the same time. Yeah. Um, uh, we talked about briefly. Iowa had, came back from a 25-point deficit uh, to force overtime against Tennessee. Tennessee won, but um, despite that, there's a Ken Palm article from earlier this month about whether momentum carries over into overtime, and this suggestion is no, not really. Uh, Admiral Schofield, it was weird in that game because it looked like Tennessee was going for a two-for-one. They were up by maybe two points, and they shot with maybe 40 seconds left at Admiral Schofield, and and then he got pulled from the game, and then he didn't go back in the game, and later he told 
or Rick Barnes told uh, reporters that Schofield said not to put him back in, that I guess Kyle Alexander was playing well, and he selflessly, I guess, took himself out of the game. It was a very a bit of a strange situation there. Do you have any thoughts on, on, on that? I mean, how well, can, uh, do you think do you think if Tennessee lost that game, whether uh, that would have that story would have come out? Uh, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that story. That's this very strange thing. Admiral Schofield's no slouch. It's, it's not, he's a senior. He's very good. Uh, he's a, been a key player all season long for this team. Uh, so it's a little weird that he would tell. And also, like, he's a competitive player. It's going to be his last game ever, and he's telling Rick Barnes, oh, no, 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 to keep keep me out. Kyle's playing so well. Like, that's so weird. Why would you say that? I don't know. It's very strange. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, then let's move on. Uh, it's no homers club over here. Uh, the main moment you haven't been waiting for, Tom. Yeah. Give us your uh, Kansas postmortem. Uh, it was just a second, stra- second straight loss in the NCAA tournament for Kansas, where there was absolutely no doubt what was going to happen. It was just a barrage of threes. Uh, Kansas, listen, this was a very disappointing year for them. They came in ranked preseason number one, uh, and they lose in the second round to Auburn. Obviously, they had there are plenty of reasons why they were not that good this year. The Zabuka injury hurt. Uh, they're relatively disappointed in shooting, especially from their guards and Dotson and Grimes, was a problem. Uh, LeGerald Vick disappearing from the team literally was a problem, and not getting to Souza because they Candace um, paid his guardian doesn't make him a bad program, you know. <laughs> Azubuki injury. Azubuki injury, yeah. So it just wasn't a uh, wasn't meant to be this year for Kansas. Probably the most disappointing year in quite some time. Um, so credit to Auburn though for just coming out and blitzing them. This is a bad matchup for Kansas. Auburn did what they did. They forced 16 turnovers. They shot lights out from three. You would think Kansas. I don't understand, you know, why they would leave Bryce Brown open all the time. The first half it seemed like every time he looked up he was shooting a three. It was 7-11. It was just bad, just bad execution. Kansas with their their just offense is just non-existent sometimes. So you have to go. Through. Maybe they thought maybe they thought he was Barry Brown from Kansas State. It was only a 30% three point shooter because they play Kansas State all the time. Because yeah, I always confuse Bryce mistake. Brown and Barry Brown. Yeah. But, no. Yeah, but I'm, he has I'm not like, a, a he Division One basketball jersey in the so. game, so you think it's figured out? Anyway, it was, it was an ugly game. Kansas did end up amazingly scoring 50 points in the second half to make the final score uh, somewhat respectable, but it never really was close. Obviously, uh, just a bad matchup. Auburn is so fast up and down the court, and Kansas is just going through Dedrick Lawson and Steve Lapis was saying like they couldn't get it, they couldn't get on the ball, and he was they was dead on and like this not a way to win you're like there's this this team was just a bad matchup this was a a problem from the moment they drew auburn in the second round um so kansas we'll see what happens they're gonna have some problems probably uh with the ncaa and we'll see what happens with but they really need grimes and dotson to just shoot threes all summer and figure it out because kansas it's it was very hard to watch this year kansas going from one of the best three-point shooting teams under bill self last year to like un, un, unwatchable from outside this year and uh yeah, and this the Kansas teams. All it seems like whenever they're knocked out early in the NCAA tournament, they have backcourts that can't take care of the ball. It happened in 2013 against Michigan with Elijah Johnson and Ben McLemore, and it happened again this year. So a disappointing end to a season, but not something you could, not something you couldn't see coming. Like you, this you could see coming since, you know, January basically. So yeah. Um... A couple of thoughts I had. One, I was thinking about picking Kansas. We, we, for those of you who didn't follow, we we picked games as they came up that were considered kind of toss ups. You know, basically between one third and two thirds chance to win for both teams. And I considered picking Kansas, but I do agree that it actually was a bad matchup. Sometimes you hear people say bad matchup, and it's just kind of like a throwaway line. But 
uh, Auburn's ability to force turnovers um, is a problem, and Kansas committed t 16 turnovers. So when I was considering picking Auburn, sorry, picking Kansas, and I saw Auburn, I saw Kansas as a turnover prone. Um, I picked against them. Quentin Grimes had four turnovers in the game. Marcus Garrett had three turnovers. Um, and I guess my question to you is, of the guys on the team, you know, you look at this core, they could return. Diedrich Lawson, Udoka Azabuki, Devin Dotson, Quentin Grimes, Oche Abaji, Charlie Moore, David McCormick, KJ Lawson, Marcus Garrett, Mitch Lightfoot. How many of the how many of those guys do you think are not going to be back next year? Lawson's gone. Azubuki's gone. Um, I think the rest will be. I, I personally don't care if I never see Charlie Moore play basketball again in my life. Less is more. He's a more. great yeah. fishing show on Nesson, though for yeah. years. Yeah. So Maybe too little, too much time fishing, too little time practicing his three pointer. Um, yeah, I mean Abaji is very highly touted, but he only played half a season, so it's highly touted by NBA people. So he is very. Um, but I think he should stick around another year. I hope he does. Uh, Dotson is great. He's very fast. He will be fine. Uh, Grimes needs to obviously develop some things. McCormick was a McDonald's All-American and came on a little bit well at the end of the year. And Marcus Garrett is an outstanding defender and needs to just be able to shoot the ball. But he's obviously very athletic, very lithe. So um, I think they have Ooh, some live. players. Ooh, live. Good use of yeah. live. Thank you, yes. Um, I think they have some good key pieces there. They just missed, like, it's just nice to have reliable shooters from outside and, you know, to play in this game like their best offensive player cannot be a big hulking big man now DJ Lawson's great but it just wasn't uh wasn't a good scenario so I'm excited to see Abaji next year I'm excited to see Dotson next year and then um we'll see how McCormick develops and Garrett maybe can take another step um but I don't really care to see Charlie Moore again I don't know if I made that clear yeah they they went from 50 they went from uh 50th in the country in percentage of their points that came from threes last year to 261st this year um, and so that's obviously Svi leaving as well as Devontae Graham. Malik Newman. Uh, and Malik Newman as well. Yeah. Um, so Providence, uh, after playing pretty well at Madison Square Garden, they were a complete no-show against um, Arkansas. Arkansas really, really played well. They were hitting everything. I'll give them some credit, but Providence also was terrible. Um, they shot... 13% on three-pointers with the, the longer three-point line in the NIT. Arkansas shot 48% on threes. And um, and Arkansas won by 12 in a game that really didn't seem quite as close as that, uh, despite the fact Arkansas didn't have um, one of their best players, or the best player on the team, Daniel Gafford, who already declared for the NBA, for the NBA draft for the game. It was kind of a fitting end to a disappointing season for Providence. A team picked third in the Big East, uh, missing the NCAA tournament for the first time since 2013. Uh, the the big news since then is uh, they've signed a transfer, um, so or, or got a commitment from a transfer. Luan Pipkins, who's scored, not even exaggerating, like about 80 points in three games against Providence in his career at UMass, he will be the answer to their problems, they hope, at point guard. Providence had by far the worst point guard play in the Big East this year, not even close. The combination of of um, Makai Ash and Langford, David Duke, and um, Malik White was just uh, simply awful. Malik White's not a point guard at all. He's a shooting guard. David Duke is like a little bit more of a combo guard and not really a distributor. Makai Ash and Langford is a, tr a true point guard, but just is really, really bad or has been. Um, so that combination was a problem for Providence this year and really was the difference between them being what they were, which was 78-9th in the country in Camp Bomb, and I think, honestly, being a top-40 team, 
So uh, Makaj Langford is planning to transfer, so it seems, after two years. Uh, he was a late commit that decommitted from UConn. It was a top 50 commit, um, but disappointing two years at Providence. He'll move on somewhere else. And um, and Drew Edwards also was kind of a, a limited role player for Providence. Had a couple of big games, including in one of the losses to Georgetown. He's moving on as a grad transfer uh, after three uh, playing seasons and one injured season at Providence. Everyone else besides Isaiah Jackson, who was a fifth-year senior, is back, assuming there's no other transfers. And I am excited about this team with a real point guard. Uh, they could be a lot better. Pipkins was a really high-usage player at UMass who had a, some injuries this year and didn't shoot all that well. But he can be a good shooter. He's like an 80% three, a free throw shooter. He was 42% from three last year. And ultimately, and he was first in conference play in the A-10 in assist rate. So I think that's going to be a big part of what they need to help take some load off of Alpha Diallo along with Nate Watson at the five. Uh, David Duke will probably start at the two next year, and A.J. Reeves, who, of course, got injured mid midseason in that UMass game, or just after the UMass game, ironically. Uh, that's not really ironic. It's just something that happened. Coincidentally. Um, and, yeah. And um, he was having a great start to the season before uh, that happened. So I do think Providence is in position to be back in the industry tournament la next year, and if Pipkins uh, fits in really well and has a good shooting season, they actually could – this could be one of their best teams they've had since uh, Chris Dunn left. Uh, so, so that's my Providence recap that no one my, really cares about. My prayer, and one my question for you, Ed Cooley. Now, what he finished this was his eighth season there. Is that right or ninth? Mm -hmm. Eighth. So like, I think it's his eighth he, season. He had been trending up, you know, had taken the team to the tournament what five straight years before this year. Mm -hmm. So was he like how how nervous were you about losing him before this year? And what do you think about just Ed Cooley? He's like how many more years we see Ed Cooley at Providence? Do you think? Well, I would say. I saw one rumor that Vanderbilt's interested in him. Vanderbilt surprisingly fired Bryce Drew uh, after this year, uh, about four days ago. Actually, I didn't realize that until today. I was doing some research on new coaches that had been, well, teams are looking for coaches, and I didn't even realize Bryce Drew got fired right in the middle of the NCAA tournament. I guess that's probably the idea of Vanderbilt firing him while no one's paying attention. Um, they obviously went winless in the SEC this year. I don't think that that's a reasonable fit. I think Ed Cooley was looking more on the track of going to the NBA after a certain amount of time, or I think he's really a Northeast guy. I don't really see bigger Northeast jobs for him. You know, UConn has their guy. Uh, that would be a big betrayal of Providence. You know, he used to be assistant, assistant coach at Boston College, but I don't really think Boston College is a step up. It's a number three program at Boston College behind football and hockey. Um, so unless he was wanted to transplant to a different part of the country uh, and take like a big Big Ten job or ACC job. Like, I, mean, I could see Maryland maybe. It's like somewhat still northeast, east coast. He's recruited a lot of the DeMarva area. Um, and if things don't go well for Mark Turgeon um, in a couple of years, I could see that job potentially being a fit. You know, as it is for him at Providence, Obviously, things are much better than they were under Keno Davis. It wouldn't take much, and things are better at, than they were late in the Tim Welsh regime uh, where they didn't make the NCAA tournament his last four seasons. Um, you know, I think there is a trajectory that they've had to kind of go on where they, in Ken Palm, they went from 126 to 69 to 48 to 27, and then um, they leveled off to 44, and then they lost Chris Dunn and uh, Ben Bentel. Um, and then they dropped to 60th, um, and then they and then the next year they brought everyone back, but still dropped another spot, 63rd, made the NCAA tournament. Then this year they lost they lost some guys, Kyron Cartwright, Rodney Bullock, Jalen Lindsay, among others, and dropped to 79th. Um, 
so there is some kind of uh, kind of treading water notion to where Providence is right now. There was the thought that okay, we've gotten to the point where we're in the tournament team every year, and now we need to get to the point where you like are playing and winning games in the tournament, going the second week in the tournament, and then maybe competing with the Villanovas and your Xavier's at the top of the conference. But instead, it feels like we've taken a step back relative to say Seton Hall, and you know Butler had a bad year this year as well, but um, now there's they're kind of not as close to Villanova and much closer to like just the middle of the league. Now, I think the big problem, their defense has been great. Uh, they've been a top 42 defense in the country now five straight years. They were 37th this year, 36th last year. They were as high as 28th in um, Chris Dunn's final season. But the offense has not been good. Uh, they haven't been higher than um, 90th the last four seasons. And they dropped They had the, the nadir of 163rd this year without Kyron Cartwright, uh, who last week retweeted, retweeted one of our tweets from Matt Bonus Pod uh, so on Twitter. So if you want to see a, a Twitter handle that Kyron Cartwright, former second-team all-biggies point guard, oh, yeah. uh, retweets, you might want to check us out on Twitter. Yeah. But, um, you know, I... I think part of it is he never a point guard. Part of it is just has bad offensive players. But part of it is it's kind of an antiquated system. They run a lot of flex. They run a lot of high ball screen for the point guard, which is fine when you have a point guard that can create, which they have had. Um, but I'd like to see them retool the offense a little bit to get a little more uh, space um, and also push the ball a little bit more. They do tend to try to push on the primary break. The secondary break has not been very effective. You know, you need shooters, and they haven't really had shooters. Um, so maybe it's more personnel than it is system, but I think some systematic tweaks could be made to get to goose that offense, get them back in the top at least 90 again. Because I think the defense next year will be top 35 good, and if the offense is top 90 good, you're talking about a top 40 team, I think, at that point. All right, so... I think we've talked enough about Providence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, quickly, I just want to make sure people are aware of some coaching changes. Um, Avery Johnson is uh, mutually relieved of his duties at Alabama. Again, Steve Prompt is an early front runner for that job, but that's not going to happen now. Wyke Jones is out of Cal. So really? They Bennett. didn't like what he did there? Yeah. Okay. Hey, he won three in a row at one point. Yeah, I know. Yeah, good for him. <laughs> Uh, Maurice Joseph out at GW, not really a big th thing, but Jamie on Christian, who um, made a name for himself this year at Siena with a very slow style, but a successful year. He's now the GW coach. Mike Dunley is out of Tulane, replaced by Ron Hunter of Georgia State, who, of course, knocked off Baylor um, in the NCAA tournament, went to the tournament again this year, but they fared worse against Houston. Bryce Drew's out. Rumors maybe Thad Mata is a good fit there. Um Ernie Kent out of Washington State, and now we know that it looks like um, Cosmo's going to be at Washington State. Uh, Billy Kennedy, we know for a while, has been out at Texas A&M. Tim Miles is out, I think officially as of today, at Nebraska, yeah. probably replaced by Fred Hoiberg. And then Marvin Menzies out at UNLV. The only reason I bring that up is because, one, it's UNLV, it's a name, and then also Frank Martin has been rumored as potentially a fit there. You know, I'm trying to take my cues from Jeff Goodman's uh, articles. They may be a little bit outdated by the time you hear. Um, and But anyway, that... Those are some uh, names to keep an eye on of uh, open jobs. The big surprise to me was Vanderbilt opening up um, after Bryce Drew had really done well on the recruiting trail, had not had great success on the court the last couple of seasons, and I, I, I don't know if there's more to it than that, um, but we'll find out, I guess. Well, they were without their, that stud player all year, whose name is escaping me right now. Right. Yeah, Darius Garland got injured early in the season, um, tore his ACL, and then declared for the draft. Uh, and Simi Shitu um, was fine, but you know they obviously needed more than just him to be 
a really good team. They finished 155th this year in Ken Palm and, and didn't win a game after uh, beating a UNC Asheville on December 31st. Yeah, didn't That's win not, a game in 2019. Yeah. It's tough to it's tough to be – I mean, yes, it was surprising, but it's tough to be super surprised when a team goes 0-18 in a major conference. That's hard. I mean, that's hard. Yeah. And, and Simi Shetu uh, was a high-volume player, but not all that effective as a freshman. Uh, Kira Lewis, one thing I wanted to add, he is going to transfer from Alabama. He was one of the youngest players Division One this year. And with the news that um, Avery Johnson is moving on, uh, Kira Lewis, who was actually quite good as a freshman. And again, if you look at his birthday, he was born uh, January 6th of 2001. Sorry, Oof. April 6th of 2001. So he's going to turn. He has. He's still not 18 years old. He's still 17 years old, and he's finished his first season. And he has been quite good. One of his comps is, um, in terms of Kempom, is Etwan Moore, who's still in the NBA, former Purdue player. Another is Malcolm Delaney. He was a very good player at, at uh, Virginia Tech. Uh, he was a guy that Providence interested in, and, but I don't think that's going to be a fit. I think he's going to want to go to a, a, a really major conference. I thought he might even consider coming. He actually can't. He can't come out of the dra- to the draft this year because he's too young still. He has to be one more year in, in college. So now he might have to sit a year, and then he could play. Oh, a year that that, that, that rule is going bye bye soon, right? The one and done rule. What is that? Yeah, yeah, but probably not soon enough for. I think it's yeah. be the 20, 2021. Um, so anyway, he's probably going to land at a major school. So keep an eye on where Kira Lewis might end up. I, I don't know if he's going to try to plead hardship. He's from Alabama, so he's not going to be going closer to home. You wouldn't think, unless he lands at Auburn. Uh, I don't know where Meridianville is relative to Tuscaloosa, um, but anyway, let's move on. We've been talking for a while. Let's let's uh, talk about the teams we're really excited about and the teams we're not so excited about. Um, we're calling this our rooting rankings. So yes. Tom and I both ranked the 16 teams left in order of how much we actually would like them to win. The national championship. Um, yeah, um, and so for what we'll do is. Um, We'll, we'll we'll just I'll just go through it and we'll go from bottom to top. Maybe we'll do it in, in quadrants. Uh, our aggregate bottom four is dead last: Duke, Oregon, um, Michigan, and LSU. Uh, of those four, you had LSU the highest at tenth for you. I had Oregon the highest at eleventh for me. But we both had uh, Duke in the bottom three. We both had Oregon in the bottom six. Uh, both at LSU in the bottom seven, and both had Michigan in the bottom five. Why don't we like these teams, Tom? Well, I don't want to. Can you imagine how unsatisfying a college basketball season would be if Oregon wins a national title? Like it would be just brutal. Like, just, they were like mutts, mucking around for half the season. Ball ball's not even going to be there. Like, what's the point? So that's why I'm not really in on. Oregon, Houston's not a name brand, and I don't really care their style hey, of play. Yeah, you have Houston really low, yeah, yeah. than fifteenth. So uh, we, we had them arrogant tied for tenth because I had Houston yeah. actually pretty high. I had Houston sixth on my list. Duke one of our obviously differences is Houston. I mean, any other year, Duke I think would be sixteen, but I think this team just because Zion's there, I think that the more the more they're there, the more buzz there is around the sport. So I think that's good, and I'm always okay with that. But I don't really care. For Duke, obviously, so I'm happy putting them 14th. And Michigan State, just the whole... There's been a lot going on with that school recently between some stuff with, uh, you know, allegedly protecting college basketball players who committed sexual assault, the whole Dr. Nasser Yeah, it's stuff. another thing about Oregon, too. Dana yeah. Altman didn't, is not yeah. really covered with glory yeah. um, in that situation. And then, of course, the um, Tom Izzo being a lunatic on the sidelines, whatever. Just, Tom Izzo went from, like, super likable to, like, not really likable for a pretty last few years. So, 
Um, and just like, you know, basketball kind of trumps all at that school. And there's like a lot of questions over there. So I don't yeah, really. I Michigan, Michigan State higher. I Michigan State at seven. Yeah. Um, I don't but, need them there. Uh, but yeah. yeah. But that's why I have my teams there. Yeah. So I had. Uh, so Duke, LSU, Michigan, uh, I had in my bottom three. And then Kentucky. You had him eighth. I had him thirteenth. Um, I think a lot of my rankings are around the fans. Like I don't dislike Michigan's program really. I really like John Beeline, one of the nicest people I've ever met in college basketball. I think I told the story earlier where I was trying to interview him after Hurricane Wilma, where I was in Florida and we had no power. But I, I set up an interview to do my Biggie's preview for this website called theasd.com that I just like created, and he. He called me back when the, my cell phone went out. <laughs> he like he was he like hey sorry I think we lost you. He's like yeah I'm in the I just got out of a hurricane with no power and he talked to me for like 20 minutes about West Virginia back then. So I'll and I and I talked talk to them about the biggest tournament in the future. I really like John Beeline. I just I hate Michigan fans so much. Oh. <laughs> so whenever I whenever I think oh man the Michigan team is kind of likable, then they show a shot of their fans just like LSU fans. Oh golly. I, I I am very much against uh, uh, football f- schools in general. Um, so you can see with my rankings uh, in general, yeah. I have the basketball schools pretty high. Uh, Kentucky, uh, same thing. So that's why Kentucky, Michigan, LSU, and Duke at the bottom, mainly because of their fans. Um, Kentucky's the one team that got stuck out of the bottom quarter for our aggregate. Our 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 lowest our third quartile in aggregate is Michigan State. You talked about how you wait on Michigan State there. I don't mind them. They're a Big Ten school. I went to a Big Ten school, obviously. Um, they seem like some, somewhat unreprehensible until the last couple of years, which, you know, but I do like their play. I like Nick Ward. I like Cassius Winston. Um, Houston and Auburn and Kentucky, we have tie for 10th in aggregate. Um, you know, I like Houston more than you. Uh, I really like Corey Davis. Um, I just, it's kind of a fun program. I think Kelvin Sampson's been involved in NCAA violations, but I think a lot of things that he he actually did are not any longer violations. So I don't know if that's like when you get arrested, when you get uh, caught with PEDs and then they take your thing off the band list four or five years later, whether you get a pass for that. Um, so I have them a little bit higher than you. And Auburn, eh, it's like, eh, Bruce Pearl is kind of annoying. They probably are paying players, or almost certainly paying players. I don't have any love for Auburn. Yeah, I had Auburn as ninth. LSU got the bump just because they're the the Wade Sim story is kind of sad. So I feel a little bad for them. I know you don't like their fans, but he was of course shot before. And the they're paying players, and they're yeah, f- yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. So I don't. I mean, if we start stop rooting for teams that are playing paying players, we're not teams to root for. Uh, Texas Tech, I don't like their style. I just don't find them hard to watch. And I'm a Big Twelve rival, so I don't really care. I wouldn't really want to see them win. And Auburn, that's I, one team I have higher in part yeah. because I've been higher than this year. I have them fifth in my rankings, Texas Tech. Yeah, and then uh, Auburn, I I think they're a fun team to watch. Like they're different. They're different from other teams, and they do things differently. So I don't really have a huge problem with them though. And Bruce Pearl is entertaining on the sideline. I know he's not. Uh, he's got some uh, skeletons in the closet, and maybe he's making some more skeletons in the closet right now. But uh, he's entertaining. And I have Kentucky all the way up at eighth. I Coach Cal is a little bit better about. Just kind of understanding what's going on with players going to the NBA, how they get treated in college going to the NBA and all that stuff. So uh, even though he's also probably, you know, dirty he, in some ways, I really respect his somewhat honesty rather than being like a total phony about it, unlike, like some other coaches. Okay, that's fair. Uh, our second quartile, like our, the teams we kind of don't dislike as much. Um, <laughs> Uh, so we have three ACC teams in this group. Uh, we had tie for seven, Texas Tech, which you mentioned I'm higher on them, you're lower on them, style play. I'm a big Chris Beard guy. Um, 
and North Carolina are tied for seventh in our rooting rankings. And then a team I'm actually much lower on than you is Virginia Tech. Um, even though I didn't go to the Final Four, you have them fourth, I have them tenth, and they're sixth in our aggregate. And then Florida State, you have them fifth, I have them eighth, and they're fifth in our aggregate. Um, Virginia Tech, I I used to like Buzz Williams, and now I don't like him because he like, trashed the Big East on the way out the door. He's not very loyal. He might be the next coach at Texas A&M. I have no time for Buzz Williams. I think he's a very good coach, though. Uh, Florida State uh, Florida State at fifth. I, I like Leonard Hamilton. I've been following him since I was a kid. Uh, he seems like he's a, kind of a strange guy, but I, I, I he's like always under the radar. And I, and I for an ACC school, I find Florida State to be relatively likable. Um, Texas Tech we mentioned. And North Carolina, I don't know. Maybe it's because – I hate Duke so much. It kind of makes me like North Carolina a little bit, and I I do like Roy Williams. I know you have mixed feelings about Roy Williams because of uh, you know the Kansas connection, but that's why North Carolina is ahead of a lot of these other um, ACC schools for me. Yeah, I just think it would be funny for the ACC. They we spent all this time talking about Duke and Carolina year after year after year. If Virginia Tech or Florida State, like not even Virginia, but if Virginia Tech or Florida State won the national title, that would be high comedy for me as like someone who just watches the ACC drool over North Carolina and Duke all this time. Uh, Buzz Williams, I remember we, we were in the office together, Brendan, when he took he left Marquette to go to Virginia Tech. We both kind of scratched our head as to why he did such a thing. And now, like, Virginia Tech is, like, unquestionably ahead of where Marquette was. So credit to him for that. But, again, he's a pretty transient uh, fellow. Um, in North Carolina, yeah. I have it seventh. I don't like Roy Williams as, um, as far as uh, just, like, kind of the way he reacted to – the whole, like, why would Kansas fans be upset at him? Like, of course we'd be upset. You, you left without winning a national title. Like, like just, it's fine that you left, but, like, don't act like, oh, how could anyone be offended? Like, it's 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 fine. That's People don't like you. You don't have to be liked by everybody. But this Carolina team's fun. Um, and, of course, I don't like Duke, so I would kind of mm-hmm. stick it to Duke if they won. So, yeah. Yeah, I had I had the three teams that are in this quartel. I had Florida State eight, North Carolina nine, and Virginia Tech ten. You had them all higher than I did, and they ended up kind of compromising in this quartile. Um, and then our top quartile, we actually had three of the teams the same. Uh, you had Virginia one, I had Gonzaga one, and then you had Gonzaga two, and I had Virginia two. Um, and then you had Tennessee three, I had Tennessee four. So that's our top three. It's basically Gonzaga, Virginia tied for first as teams are rooting for the most. Tennessee third, and then Purdue. You had them six, I had them third, and they combined their fourth for us. Um, I guess I'll start since uh, Purdue is a team I have higher. Uh, you know, Purdue is kind of inoffensive. It's not like Iowa, whom I kind of can't stand. The Big Ten. Northwestern always beats Purdue in, in football, so I don't have anything against them. And they they seem pretty likable. They have really good fans. They have a good home court advantage. Great uh, home Tennessee's court third. Yeah, and, and the reason why it, uh, I have Tennessee third is um, is court. because Rick Barnes, I think when they're likable, they're kind of fun. They got the cool colors. And also Rick Barnes was at, as a Providence coach. Um, and then we've been talking about Gonzaga and Virginia all year. And it's just like that. those are the teams that we would have like – kind of redemption uh most redemption if they win the title to like prove that a, a team like Gonzaga can win that title still to prove a team that got knocked off by a 16 c can come back win that title and thwart all the critics who think you can't win that title with that style so uh, what do you have to add to that i mean that's exactly why i picked virginia i i would be interested to see if mark few would admit that winning a national title means something to him after he challenged 
uh, the idea that making the final four meant something to him, but of course it would mean something to him. And it would be good because people do shortchange Gonzaga year in, year out, and people have definitely been shortchanging Virginia just because of one loss last year and because of, well, not just because of one loss, but I think it would just be great to stick it to everybody if they won the national title, especially in this year where it's been all Duke all the time. Uh, I think that would be very satisfying for a lot of people, including me. Yeah, so I I think it's clear that um, we would be down for a Gonzaga-Virginia national title game. Uh, you would be rooting for UVA, me for Gonzaga, but we'd, uh, we'd have fun doing it. But probably it's going to end up being something like what would be most offensive, Duke-Michigan national. I would guess that would be, be regional. That would be a national semifinal. But maybe Duke-Kentucky or, you know, we'll see. I'm sure it will be something we don't like. Uh, or maybe it'll be all AC teams, which would be which Tom is kind of intrigued by the possibility, whereas I am mortified by it or horrified. I'm I'm more horrified than mortified. Um, either way, speaking of sport short changing, let's move on to our previews. We'll go through each region. Uh, we'll try to do it. Uh, uh, give you some good details without uh, taking too long dwelling on this. Um, so let's start in the South. The matchups there are Purdue, Tennessee, and Oregon, Virginia. Um, Interesting matchups, maybe the most lopsided matchup in Oregon, Virginia. Um, I'll let you go, Tom. What do you think of these two matchups, uh, and and what what we think we're going to see in the South? Uh, I like Virginia, obviously, against Oregon. I think Oregon's defense though has really clamped down recently, so I'd be a little wary of thinking that this game is going to be a blowout, just because Oregon has played very well uh, recently. Remember, they haven't lost since uh, late February, um, and they've been playing very good defense. Remember, they held Washington to just 48 points in the um, Pac-12 championship game. They've held each of their first two opponents to 54 points uh, in the tournament. So Dan Alman knows how to coach defense. They're now 15th in the country in adjusted efficiency. So expect a low-scoring game uh, in this one. But And I obviously expect Virginia to win, but I wouldn't be surprised. Auburn's pulled – I mean, sorry, Oregon's pulled some upsets before. Remember, they took down Kansas two years ago in the regional final in Kansas City. Um, and then we talk about Tennessee – Against Purdue, this is a game that's a basic coin flip. I know Vegas has him favored Tennessee, but uh, Ken Palm likes Purdue very slightly um, in this game. Uh, the question we'll have is, can Tennessee get anything out of its bench? Um, obviously, uh, Kyle Alexander was big in the game against Iowa, but they're not a very deep team, and I think this could catch up to them here. Uh, Purdue is a team that's been ranked in the top 10 or 15 of Ken Palm pretty much the last couple months, and this might be their time to shine. Uh, if they can go out there and take care of um, business. Both teams very good offensively, top five offensive teams. So this is a sneaky good game. I think it'll be very mm-hmm. close. Um, it's not the sexiest matchup as far as brand name programs that we're going to see this weekend or this uh, Thursday and Friday, but you know, two top five teams in offense is pretty good when you get these two teams on the court. Yeah, I mean, stepping back a little bit, uh... Something I, I've heard in multiple podcasts and other places, but the fact that we've had so few upsets means that we have uh, a lot of good matchups yeah, in the Sweet 16 good. in the regional finals. We're going to have, there's no real duds. The closest thing to a dud is probably Virginia, Oregon, um, which is in this region, which is probably why this is maybe the least compelling region. Although the story of Virginia going to the Final Four would be a really good story, or Tennessee, or Purdue. None of those programs are going to the Final Four in a very long time. Um, Purdue, of course, under Gene Cady, was always very, very close. Purdue and Temple were kind of the teams in the 80s and 90s that were always so close to going to the Final Four and never got there. Um, and it would be interesting if Purdue got there. Tennessee hasn't been in ever, ever. I think the, I think the answer to that is ever. And then Virginia hasn't been since Ralph Sampson was there. 
So those would all be interesting. Oregon actually has, has come recently, but they'd be a, kind of Cinderella, like a weird Cinderella, like pseudo Cinderella if they got there. Um, and so I think that's interesting thing about this bracket. One thing I want to note is, so Oklahoma scored 95 points in its win against Mississippi in round one, and then against Virginia in round two, they scored 51 points, um, which was a 44-point differential, which is the most differential between a, a first-round game and a second-round game for the same team since Indiana scored 108 in a win over George Washington and then 61 in a loss to St. John's in 1999. Um I see in this article that I'm looking at a list of teams who've had a 30 percent thirty point differential, and Virginia appears on this twice. Once Virginia scored 76 points against UNC Wilmington, but then scored only 37 in a loss to Florida in 2017, and then UMBC actually after scoring 74 against Virginia only scored 43 in their loss to Kansas State. So, anyway, Virginia's defense is really really good. Oregon's defense has been really really good uh, of late. Virginia's gotten a lot of Mamadi Dakite, which is kind of surprising. Um, Carson Edwards had a massive game against Villanova and is a, a kind of the kind of player who could take down a defense like Virginia by just like draining 25-footers. Uh, so keep an eye on that if that matchup happens. Uh, but a lot of good feel-good stories in this region, except for, I would say, Oregon. Yeah. Uh, I think I'll agree with Tom and pick say I think UVA will win. I think we should also just... Yeah, we should also mention there would be a Sasson emailed us after Virginia. Uh, we didn't really talk about this too much, but they were down 14 at one point to Gardner Webb, 28 to 14, and mm-hmm. it was very nerve wracking. Luckily, they like kind of like as soon as <laughs> as soon as it got to that point, they immediately turned it around and made it a close game before the half. And then um, I was wondering what the live odds were in that game, and I don't think they were ever dogs in the game, even at 28-14. So, um, and then the question yeah, was well, like. I have a couple of follow-ups on that. Sorry, go with the question first from Tom, and then talk about just, live outs. I was just saying, uh, the question from the would-be assassin was like, how do we how do we interpret that game? Like, did it is it good that they obviously it's good that they won, but like, to, was it bad that they lost? Like, were they feeling it? And then would uh, I'm paraphrasing here, and then I said they would grow into the tournament, and I like, think it would be really good. Like, they just kind of got their sea legs, and I think that they're going to be fine. And then they look very good against Oklahoma, especially defensively. Um, so it's nice that Virginia was able to turn it around, but that was a, not the start to the tournament they wanted when they were down 28-14. Yeah, that game I kind of got lost in. That game hadn't gone to it yet, and was it was like about to go to get a, get a haircut. <laughs> um, I was just kind of taking a break from work to get a haircut, and then I think you messaged me and said Virginia or something like that, and I saw the score and I replied, "Oh no, yes." This, <laughs> um, and uh, I think that so. Um, I was talking to a friend, Lucas, by the way, if Lucas listened this far on the podcast, congratulations, Lucas became a father today, um, yeah. which is pretty exciting for him. I'm not going to give you more details about that because I don't know if he would want me to. That's something that happened today. Maybe you've already uh, said too much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, no, I've said too much. I haven't said enough. Um, so he, we were talking about what the live odds were, and at halftime, Virginia was down by six, and they were four, and the second half line was minus 14.5 for UVA. And Lucas calculated that based on that, that they were basically, um, Gardner-Webb was about 15% to win the game. At that moment, uh, our friend Nate Silver had Gardner-Webb at 38% to win the game. So um, I'm going to say that that was not, not accurate. Um, yeah. We'll move on from that. Also Thursday, we have out of the West region, uh, Texas Tech, Michigan, the two best events in the country. And then we have Florida State-Gonzaga, a matchup in the same round, in the same county. No, I guess Anaheim's Orange County. In the same yeah. south land area or whatever um uh this is two same two teams florida state gonzaga in the sweet 16 again 
What, what are your initial reactions to this uh, these two matchups? I think Florida State has had a very good stretch. They're kind of the team that's gone around that no one's really talking about right now as far as a dangerous team. Uh, if you look at their schedule recently, they are, I think what they've won 16 of the last 18 games, and their only games were their only losses were neutral against Duke and at North Carolina. Remember, this is a team that almost beat Duke back in January at home. Uh, the game Zion the got Zion the double vision game. Yeah. <laughs> Um, of course, then they followed it up with losses to Pittsburgh and Boston College. But since then, they've lost only two games. As um, one look, does. Yeah, they look pretty good. Uh, Murray State, which obviously had its way with uh, Marquette, had no such luck against um, uh, Frawler State in the second round. And in their first round game against Vermont, like that's a tough game to play at Hartford. You got a local t- team, pretty fan, uh, pretty heavy f- fan uh, presence there. Uh, and here we are again in the Sweet 16 against the team they beat last year. So I think they have a very good chance. Gonzaga is better <coughs> excuse me, than they were last year. So I would expect them to win, but do not be surprised. And I think I said on this podcast a few weeks before the tournament, like, don't be surprised if Florida State just walks into the lead eight. So they could do it. Uh, as for the Texas Tech-Michigan game, this is going to be a defensive struggle. Uh, Michigan has not uh, had too much trouble so far this tournament. They beat Fl- uh, Florida without too much trouble after beating uh, Montana. You know, they're great job by the NCAA tournament to have those two teams uh, play for two straight years. We talked about that, but Texas Tech, this game, Ken Palm has it is a one-point game uh, for Michigan. It's supposed to be 62-61, number one versus number two in defense. And their offenses uh, aren't bad either. Texas Tech is 35th in the country, so more than respectable. And Michigan is 19th in adjusted efficiency. So um, the question here, the big matchup is, can Michigan State, sorry, can Michigan control the ball? They're one of the best teams in turnover percentage, and, Michi- and Texas Tech forces uh, turnovers on 23.1% of their opponent possessions. So that's really where, forget the shooting, that's really the uh, thing I'm intrigued about uh, in this game. Yeah, I think this is actually the most interesting doubleheader of any of the four, and I actually would choose Florida State and Gonzaga as the most intriguing game of the regional semis. Um Florida State scored 1.26 points per possession against Murray State. It's their highest points possession against a top 100 opponent since February of 2017, so more than two years I was against Clemson. Um, Brandon Clark was ridiculous in the um, in the game against uh, who did they play? Oh, Baylor. And uh, and he might be the second-best player in the country. It, it's, it's, it's possible that he's the second-best yeah. player in the country. Uh, if it's not him, it might be Jarrett Culver. I mean, obviously, John Morant's very good, too. But of the guys remaining, the second-best player in the country might be Jarrett Culver, who's in one of the games, or it might be uh, Brandon Clark, who's in the other game. Clark, of course, had 36 points. He had more block shots than missed shots in the game. He had five block shots and three missed shots. He was 15 for 18 from the field. I guess he did miss two, uh, two free throws, if you want to count those. Eight rebounds, three assists, five blocks, two steals. He is amazing. Uh, he's kind of like a better version of Jordan Bell, if you remember him from Oregon a couple of years ago. Uh, one of, another of his comps in the uh, Ken Palm comp uh, stat thing is Emeka Okafor, which you may have heard of. He's not uh, bad. Church. Yeah, he's not bad. It goes to my church. He won national title. So, hey, that's a pretty good uh, three for three. He's in an all-time classic Jim Calhoun quote, and I see him occasionally on Sundays. I'm just looking, um, I'm just looking through Brandon Clark's O ratings this year. He has one game under 100, and it looks like he only has one game under 110. That was an 85 <laughs> against Washington on December 5th. That is insane. Like, talk about consistency. 
It's ridiculous. And and he hasn't been a high usage player this year. He's only at 23, 20, 23.9% for the season for usage. But he had 30% against Baylor. He had 25% against Philly Dickinson. And then he had he, he wasn't as high against St. Mary's, but then he had 28 and 24 and 25 in the previous games to end the, um, the conference season. So I think uh, he's stepping into a, a bigger role at this point. Um, and Zach is playing well. They bounced back, obviously, from that loss to St. Mary's. Uh, speaking of 110, uh, Texas Tech has only allowed a, more than 1.1 points per possession or 110 per 100 possessions the entire season. Um, and, of course, that's a defensive matchup. The thing about that matchup is I wonder whether Michigan um, can, and Luke Yachlick, their kind of defensive coordinator, can figure out a way to stifle Jarrett Culver, who's had a usage of at least 37% in each of the last three games, which is very high. He allows guys like Davide Moretti and Tariq Owens and Narenzi Odiasi to be more efficient. Um, so anyway, I'm I'm going to take I'm going to stick with Gonzaga. And I'm going to take Gonzaga and I'm going to take Michigan and Gonzaga to go to the Final Four. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I just think that Texas Tech is just a little too reliant on Culver. We talked about that last week, and I think that that's something Michigan can exploit, especially since this is the first game they have to play. Like they are been, they've been off since Sunday, so they have known who they're going to play. They probably are trying to draw up a way. To just they're going to try to make someone else beat them. Um, I think that'll be a uh, tough test. And Gonzaga's offense is just too good this year for Florida State to take them down. So Ooh, I like. Ooh, you're fl- you're flipping your pick from the from the predictions. I know. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's uh, Brandon Clark. I mean, I watched the game. They just blitz blitzed Baylor. They have been too good. They like just no trouble whatsoever. Um, I think they'll be. Uh, I think they'll be fine. So. Yeah. Stay up late Thursday. That's a great. That's going to be an awesome game. Yeah. I, I would be if it's if it's not a close game. I'm going to be bummed because that's my favorite game of the of the of the Thursday or Friday. Um, let's move on to the East, which is the Duke region. It's in D.C. Uh, LSU, Michigan State, which I'm calling like early career Nick Saban Bowl. People might forget <laughs> that Nick Saban was the coach of Michigan State at one point, and then went to LSU where he won a national title, his first national title, and then Virginia Tech, Duke. Um, Michigan State was very good in the well. They had a tough start against uh, Bradley, but um, uh, but Cassius Winston has not been as high usage player, and I th- that's kind of the concern with him that he might have to take on too much of the load. They've been a little more balanced in the first two rounds. Um, although Nick Ward only played ten minutes in their first game, played twenty in the second game. LSU, we talked about a bunch already. Um, their defense has been pretty good. Against Yale, Yale shot poorly from three. Against Maryland, Maryland shot poorly from two. And LSU's gotten to this point without great performances yet from Tremont Waters or Naz Reed. Virginia Tech, Duke, let's talk about that one in full. But first, I want to hear your thoughts on LSU, Michigan State. Uh, obviously, I think this might be, I mean, LSU was a little fortunate to beat Maryland. They did not really play super well. And obviously, they're going to have to take it to another level against Michigan State, which is playing extremely well right now. Um I think they've gotten used to who they have um, as far as the injuries go. So I think they'll be okay there. I do like Michigan State in this game. I think the spread is pretty fair on Ken Palmas, what, seven or eight? And I think that's something that uh, that seems about right. Cassius Winston's playing really well. And um, they don't really, they haven't missed Kyle Lawrence so far. Straight cash, so. homie, is what I call him. I don't yeah, know if that, yeah. that's catching on. Yeah. That's okay. a Randy, a, a rare on. NFL reference by me. Yeah. Randy. Uh, yeah, and dated, but still correct. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess well, we know from last week. I, I my references, I, I'm like, uh, I, I'm like your your uncle. My references are all from like 20 years ago. Yeah, 
Wait, how do you know my uncle? Oh, just no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, offensive rebounding for LSU could be key. They're ninth in the country in that, and Michigan State is very good defensively, but not especially good at preventing offense teams from getting offensive glass. Uh, so that could be a way into this game for the Tigers. Yeah, I like Michigan State, but I, I remember the last time LSU got this far, they played a really good uh, Duke team in this round, and they had Tyrus Thomas, and they had Big Baby, and uh, Glenn Davis, they had Garrett Temple, um, and no one really gave them a chance to um, to beat that Duke team with J.J. Redick and Sheldon Williams, and they did, and I feel like this team is kind of similar. Um, they have a lot of really good athletic players like like uh, Big B Williams and Naz Reed, and, uh, and they have their point guard in Tremont Waters. Like It could definitely go their way. Obviously, I'm still going to pick Michigan State. They're the better team. They have a, a Hall of Fame coach. Uh, a very kind of angry Hall of Fame coach, but nonetheless, huh. um, and they're playing good basketball right now. Uh, so, but Virginia Tech Duke obviously is the matchup that people are talking about. I picked Virginia Tech to beat Duke in what I thought would be the most surprising result of the NCAA tournament, or the most buzzy, buzzy surprising result of the NCAA tournament Ooh. entering the tournament. But um, I guess I'll stick with it. I'm not. Uh, oh, but mm, I I didn't even see what I did there. Jesus. Yeah. Well, we um, haven't talked for almost two hours, so. <laughs> oh boy. So. Um, you know, UCF really shot well against Duke. I think Virginia Tech's going to do the same. Uh, to me, this is going to come down to three-point shooting. Virginia Tech plays a, a type of zone and or a pack line, depending on the matchup, that forces teams to shoot threes. Only one team in the country uh, allowed more three-pointers um, as a, at, at, from a rate basis than Virginia Tech's defense did this year. They're going to force Duke to shoot threes. Duke was very... Um, cognizant of Virginia Tech's three-point shooting in their last game that Virginia Tech won when Zion wasn't there. Neither was Virginia Tech point guard Justin Robinson. Um, in that game, Virginia Tech did not shoot well on threes. Well, only eight for 26, but still won because they made a lot of twos. Uh, and they also made 23 free throws. Um, and the question is, with Zion, will he, be, will he be enough to kind of hold down the fort on the inside, or will Kerry Blackshear have another big game? Uh, in that game, uh, he scored 23 points and had 10 rebounds. Um, it's weird because Virginia Tech's considered to be a really high-volume three-point shooting team, but they had their their two lowest three-point attempts of the season in the last two games, 10 and 16, um, but still won easily, even though actually it was their defense that got them to this point, knocking off, uh, knocking off, blowing out St. Louis, and then beating Liberty. I think this is, to me, this is the second most interesting game of Thursday and Friday after Gonzaga-Florida State. Um, you have, who are you taking, Virginia Tech and Duke? I'm taking Duke. Um, I think that Virginia Tech is one of the rare teams to have a completely easy path to the uh, Sweet 16. They had St. Louis, who was a bid thief and wouldn't have got it in had they not won the A-10 tournament. And they got Liberty, who wasn't very good, and had them on the, not on the ropes, but was hung with them for probably uh, three-fifths of that game before falling off. This is a game where like they're going to dare Duke to beat him from outside, and Duke's going to have to make some shots. And of course, their one meeting this year was in uh, Blacksburg, and it didn't have the two best players. So it's I struggle to draw too many conclusions from that. I do think Buzz Williams is a good coach, and he can come up with a scheme to kind of rattle Duke and throw it off. Um, so I would not be surprised at all if Virginia Tech won. I just think that Duke, I could see him just making a few threes, and that will really help uh, help them out in this game. Um, they're going to have plenty of opportunities to shoot from outside, so we'll see. And, of course, I don't know, Zion in foul trouble uh, is a problem for Duke, so we would hope that he does not pick them up if you were a Duke fan. Yeah, Kerry Blackshear uh, draws 5.4 a game, and yeah. Justin Robinson on drives draws 5.1 a game, so 
that's certainly could be a problem for Duke. Uh, Virginia Tech has Nikhil Alexander-Walker, who hits 38% of his threes on a lot of attempts. Even Kerry Blackshear, they're big at 6'10", hits 34% of his threes, uh, but less than one make a game. Justin Robinson is at 41%. Uh, Ahmed Hill is at 39%. Um, Isaiah Wilkins is at 42%. And Ty Outlaw is at 46%. Even Wabisa Bede, uh, the sophomore point guard, is at 34%. Yeah. All their guys can shoot threes. They're going to shoot a lot of threes. They're going to try to probably make Duke shoot a lot of threes. And I think basically what it comes down to is if you take out three-point shooting, Duke is somewhere between, say, six and 12 points better in neutral court maybe. Um, that's kind of spitballing. But what can, can Vatek outscore and outplay Duke from three-point line by 12, 15, 18 points and win the game that way? That's how I think it'll go. But sometimes we think that, and it's the complete opposite. They're only 320 spaces apart in three-point shooting percentage. Virginia Tech is ninth, and Virginia and uh, Duke is three hundred twenty ninth. So, yeah, yeah. Um, they don't have the d- dominator inside like UCF did. They are not a great shot blocking team. Virginia Tech is not. They're two or fifth in the country in, in two point uh, in th- in block shots. Although they are still a pretty good two point defensive team. Uh, so I do think that uh, R.J. Barrett and Zion Williamson are going to try to go to the hole and. Uh, the question is, can the scheme of Virginia Tech keep them away and force them into shots? And then, if that happens, will Duke make those shots? I, I, you know, right now, if you were to make me bet my life on it, I'd probably pick Duke. But I picked Virginia Tech to beat Duke when the tournament started. I'll stick with it. I'll go Vatek, and I'll go Vatek over Michigan State to go to the Final Four. Get high before. Are you taking Duke to go to the Final Four? Yeah. Yeah. Our last region is the Midwest region, which, you know, seems interesting, and it, and it is. It's out of Kansas City. Um, but, you know, people are talking about this Auburn-North Carolina game as if it's like two really fast-paced teams. But Auburn is not that fast-paced a team. They do force a lot of turnovers, but North Carolina is fast-paced. They're a fun team, as we mentioned. Auburn's fun in the fact that they force a lot of turnovers and take a lot of threes. Um, my biggest concern in this game is that North Carolina is really good offensive rebounding team. And I think that even if North Carolina is not hitting shots, they'll be able to kill Auburn on the offensive glass um, and the question is, can Auburn keep him off the glass, and um, and and therefore will Auburn be able to close out possessions when North Carolina does not score? Uh, I don't think that will happen. I do think North Carolina will win, but I think that that's going to be the story: is whether Auburn's bigs, uh, and and it seems like uh, um, his name's Okike. I'm forgetting the first name. Um, the big for Chuma Auburn. Kiki. Chuma, thank you. Yes. Chuma Okike. He's. Um, not a great defensive rebounder. He's okay. Anthony Macklin was actually their best defensive rebounder. Uh, but again, they were 334th in the country in defensive rebound percentage for the season. If I'm looking at the NCAA tournament, the only teams that were worse in the NCAA tournament at defensive rebounding were Syracuse. We talked about them in their zone. Georgia State, Prairie View A&M, and Washington. Also, a lot of zone teams here. Um, and I do think that North Carolina is going to exploit Auburn on the glass and win this game. Oh, uh, yeah. So first of all, shout out to Nathan, because we've been talking for an hour or something minutes, 40 minutes. And this is really the first time we've talked about North Carolina. So I know he's a listener. I know he's made it this far. And now we're finally talking about North Carolina. So let's give him, <laughs> like, let's give him more than like, you know, like, give him some do here because uh, they were my preseason. I think both of our preseason picked to win the national title. And here they yeah. are. They're playing pretty well. This game, the over-under is like 160. So even though Auburn slows it down, they're going to the, people expect to see a lot of points in this game. And I think uh, you will see it. Um, Naz Little, I want to talk about him for a second because he's been excellent in the tournament. We've talked about how Roy Williams is 
uh, kind of kept the the reins on him or the you know kept him in check. But he has had an outstanding tournament through two games against Iona and Washington. He scored 39 points. He's made 16 of sorry, 17 of 24 shots, uh, and he's it's played ridiculous. 38 minutes. So he has been very good. So credit to him. Obviously, Kobe White is really fun to watch. Uh, this team is playing pretty well right now, obviously, and they are fast. So this game will be exciting. It'll be a little frenetic, um, but I do like Carolina. I just think that I could see them getting rattled. Uh, this is the type of game where Roy Williams may actually want to call a timeout if Auburn starts <laughs> forcing a few live ball turnovers. Like this is, it's a tricky defense. Like it's not the best defense, but it's tricky. And you may Bill Self called three timeouts in the first half, like in the first 12 minutes uh, on. Saturday night, so just don't be afraid, Roy. If if the the, uh, the situation calls for it, and it, Auburn is crazy in the way, the way they pace the pace is different. They are on uh, offense, they're 64th in the country. On defense, they're 335th in the country in tempo. That is a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And uh, credit to them, they forced a turnover on 25.2% of other teams' possessions. So I think this game will be more entertaining than uh, I, I guess. Why I see why you think it's overrated, but. I think this game will be uh, pretty entertaining. This is actually a game I'm more interested in watching than you are, I think. But um, yeah, um, I kind of think that this is, that uh, UNC is going to knock them out, and I think it's going to be like 12, 15 point yeah. game fairly early with Auburn trying to kind of claw back in, maybe getting into like seven or six at some point. People getting excited after a few threes go in. Jared Hopper, Harper's a 38% three point shooter. Bryce Brown's a 41% three point shooter. Chumo Kiki, even though he's six eight, is a 38% three point shooter. And all these guys have made uh, a pretty high volume, especially Bryce Brown and Jared Harper. Okike is one of the few guys who's a, both a great shot blocker and a great guy getting steals. Samir Doughty is a, like a 3 and D 6-4 guy who's at 43% on threes and is in top 100 in the country in steals rate. So you should know those guys. Most of you probably know the North Carolina guys to be concerned with. Kobe White's been amazing this year as a freshman, taking up a high volume of shots and making them at a, at a really high rate while still getting assists. Luke May, Cameron Johnson, we talked about Nas a little. It's a, I was going to bring him up. He brought him up first. He's been awesome this tournament, and he's kind of the X factor, the reason why, at least for me, I thought they were going to win the national title at the start of the season. I originally picked Kentucky come out of this region. I definitely think North Carolina will now for reasons that we'll get into with Kentucky mainly, but also because UNC is playing really well and has Nas a little. Uh, do you have UNC winning this game also, right? Yes. Yeah. So our last game is Houston-Kentucky. Um, I like Houston to win this game. P.J. Washington is, is still hurt, probably won't play. He's probably the, the second-best player in the SEC, the best player on Kentucky. Without him, I think Houston's defense is going to be too tough. Uh, Houston's number one in the country in effective field goal defense. They are balanced. They are deep. They are led by Corey Davis, who's one of my favorite players in college basketball. Uh, a really fun player who plays on both ends of the floor. Um, and they have other players, too. I, I don't want people to see. If there's a Houston fan listening, unlikely. Maybe Jim Nance is out there. Um, <laughs> but they have other good players. Dejan Giroux is uh, a guy who doesn't play all that much. But when he does, he's very active. He's a transfer from UMass. Um, and then and they're just very balanced. Like they have no, None of their starters is more than 23% usage. Armani Brooks, Galen Robinson had a big game against uh, Ohio State. Um, Nate Hinton. Uh, they're just a, a very balanced offensive team, and their defense is top 12. Um, they're the best. They have the best three-point shooting defense in the country, which, you know, in theory is not a, a skill you can that translates. But you know, they were 31st in the country last year in three-point defense. 
Um, they've been now top six in consecutive years in effective field goal defense. They were six last year under Kelvin Sampson, who I think is one of the best uh, X's and O's coaches we have left in the tournament. Um, you know, Kentucky's good. They Their defense is excellent. This is going to be a team of, a game of two good defenses. Kentucky's top ten defense. I just am not sure down the stretch who's going to score for Kentucky. Because it's even about Houston, but without P.J. Washington, I'm going to take Houston in, in, a, in a small upset. Yeah, the, the whole P.J. Washington situation is very mysterioso. Uh, like, he came in, they CBS caught him on a scooter going into, like, one of those, like, kneeling scooters going into uh, the tournament uh, site in the first and second round, and he's probably not going to play, and he could be out for the entire tournament. So that is not good news for Kentucky. These are very balanced. Um, it's a very balanced matchup already, and especially without P.J. Washington, you think that Houston has a very good chance. Um, and... Kentucky, we t- Duke has gotten all the press this year for not shooting the three, but Kentucky obviously also very bad from outside, and that could be a problem too, especially if they fall behind. Uh, they did not look great against Wofford. In fact, they might you can argue they were a little fortunate to win that game with Fletcher McGee shooting the way he did. So I just don't necessarily see uh, why like why why anyone would be super confident um, in picking Kentucky to win this game. So um, yeah, Houston's balanced. They're solid. And their defense is outstanding, and I think it'd be a problem for uh, Kentucky. So I, I again, Kentucky's really talented, and they have other ways to score um, other than mm-hmm. PJ Washington. So who knows? People could step up, um, but I definitely think that the uh, I definitely think that um, that uh, Houston has a. It's just, to me, this game is a coin flip, and I really have no read on uh, how it would go. So uh, yeah, mm-hmm. you, I guess gun to my head, without PJ Washington, I would pick Houston, but. I wouldn't be surprised either way. Yeah, against Brawford, the the guys who took up the load in terms of the volume were Ashton Hagens at 27% usage, Keldon Johnson 27% usage. Both of them were just like eh in terms of their efficiency. Jamal Baker came off the bench, and actually he took six shots in just uh, 18 minutes and missed four of them. Um, and and so, I don't know. I mean, Reed Travis is a guy you feel like would be fairly effective in this game. He was good against Wofford. Um, but he was he only he he played 37 minutes, but he he only he was only at 17 uh, percent usage. So I think they're gonna have a balance attack. They're gonna have to get some hit some threes. They only took 13 three point attempts um, in this game. I think uh, Houston's defense is too tough to feel like you're gonna be able to score that much inside unless they get a a friendly whistle. Which of course with Big Blue Nation in attendance, you in Kansas City that could happen. Uh, so let's review our, our picks in each region. Let's go backwards when we said in the Midwest, we both have North Carolina going in the Final Four. Is that true of you? You have North Carolina? Tom? Yep. Yep, and we, have no, I have North, we both have North Carolina over Houston, actually. In the East, um, I have Virginia Tech over Michigan State. Tom has Duke over Michigan State. In the West, you're taking Gonzaga over Michigan. You, you're switching from your preseason or your pre-tournament pick, right? Correct, yes. I was, I'm, Brandon Clark has convinced me. Yeah, so we, we agree on that. And then I'm going to take uh, Virginia over Purdue. I don't know if I remember who you took uh, in the Purdue-Tennessee game. I'm taking Purdue. Okay, so we have a lot of agreements. The only disagreement we have really is in that uh, the East region where you're, you're picking Duke and I'm picking Vatek. Yeah, it's hard I'm really going on a little. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, I think thir- Thursday's games would be great. Uh, and Friday's games would be good too. Um, I'm gonna be, actually be a retreat Friday night through Sunday, but th- they have TV, so I think I'll be able to catch a, a good chunk of this. Thursday, and then Tom and I have already put it in the calendar. We're gonna do the final four together. So maybe we'll do a podcast that night. Who knows? Maybe. Uh, I think Thursday and Friday are, you know, two of the best windows or 
types of the tournament. Everyone talks about the first two days, but Thursday and Friday, if you get one, if all you need is half one good game per window. You have two cracks at mm-hmm. it. They're the highest. The stakes are high. The teams are good, especially this mm-hmm. year. And mm-hmm. uh, some of the best games in the tournament. We talk about that Duke Indiana game, Sweet 16 games. Those games. And this is where like you. you Teams have been cruising along, and then you're shocked, and they're out. And it's like, oh, my God, that team lost in the Sweet 16. So I think that we could see some, at least one shocker like that this week, and I think that's what this tournament's all about. Yeah. Um, a memorable Sweet 16 game that you don't want to hear about is that Michigan-Kansas game from a few years ago. I watched that on a plane. I really wanted a hug after that game, and I couldn't even walk it off. I was stuck on a plane for like another hour, and the guy next to me was like, oh, you had Kansas in your bracket. I didn't want to explain to him why I was a Kansas fan. It was, just, it was like one of the worst sports-watching experiences of my life, especially the way they lost the game, where if they did any of like 13 things correctly, they would have won the game. Never never a good sign when Elijah Johnson picks up a 10-second count in a, <laughs> in a tournament game. Uh, um, the same game I'm he punched Mitch this... McGarry in the groin, by the way, and got a technical foul in the first half. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Mitch McGarry, pretty punchable. Um, yeah, definitely. I'm looking through this this Bleacher Report article of the best uh, Sweet 16 games of the last decade, and the, the number 10 game is actually the uh, I already mentioned that uh, regional where it was uh, Duke versus LSU. The other game was a great game. I remember I was driving from Savannah to Miami, listening to Texas knock off West Virginia, John Beeline West Virginia team. I just interviewed him earlier that year in the in the hurricane, and uh, that Texas knocked off that team when they had Lamarcus Aldridge um, by three. That was one of the that was a great game. Georgetown Vanderbilt, which we had a big travel by Jeff Green in two thousand seven. Uh, Georgetown going to the Final Four that year. Kentucky, Ohio State, oh, yeah. which Ohio State I thought was the best team of the of the tournament in 2011. Kentucky knocked them off by two points, and it was a great game. I think it was, was it Brandon Knight who had the big shot. Yeah, Brandon Knight had the big shot. Um, I'm looking down this list. VCU over Florida State. Uh, Davidson over Wisconsin. We saw some um, Steph, Steph Curry, obviously. UCLA, Gonzaga, Gonzaga with, with Adam Morrison crying. That was a crazy – you should watch the last few minutes of that game on YouTube. If you guys – we're going to have to do the outro to uh, Gus Johnson just having to fit to UCLA, Gonzaga. That's number five game. Number four, Ohio State, Tennessee. Greg Oden, um, that was a great game. OSU won by one. North Carolina, Ohio State in 2012. I don't remember this – game off the top of my head, but it was an overtime game. I'll take... Oh, because it's Ohio, not Ohio State. Well, I don't remember that game. I know Ohio had the final 15, but... K-State over Xavier in double OT. That was a great game. I, I watched that game, like, uh, I think over the summer. Check that game out. That was yeah. a, a West game. Um, K-State ended up going to the regional final where they lost to uh, Butler, actually. Uh, Butler had beaten um, uh, Syracuse. And the number one game they have of the last 10 years, I'm not sure this is published, was Michigan over Kansas. We won't talk about that any further. But yeah. we won't talk, we're not going to talk any further, actually, yes. because we're done. We've given you more than you have paid for, honestly. Yes. Uh, but look <laughs> us up in the various... Yeah. Yeah. Look us up in the various places where things are looked up and do the reviews and tell your friends and double bonus pod at and the emails and everything. Email us, doublebonuspod at gmail.com. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. Tell me how much me talking too fast messes you up when you're on double speed. But that's that's the way it goes. Uh, I'll work on it. Um, otherwise, check us out next week. We'll be reviewing and previewing and doing all that good stuff. And until that next time, well, famous last words, Tom, what do you got for us? Keep your ear to the grindstone. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better myself. Good night, everyone. 71-74. So even with two made free throws, UCLA will still have a chance if they can rebound to tie this game up.
Pendergraft, the inbounder on the baseline. And the only guy that you might take a foul in is Jeremy Parker at 69%. They throw it to Morrison. He holds on. We don't want to foul Morrison. You make him get it over half court. You know you got a foul. And it's there. 